This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. an English legal scholar by the name of Sir William Blackstone who famously wrote in 1765 something that I very much agree with and uh, I have always agreed with this. He wrote that it was better that it's better that 10 guilty persons escape than one innocent suffer. It is easily one of the most well-known and frequently cited maxims in modern law. Do you think it's true? You think it's true? You think it's better to let uh, 10 guilty people go free than to have one innocent man punished or person? History is full of all sorts of variations on this idea. While other examples often feature different ratios, The core concept reverberates through centuries and across cultures around the globe. It's worse to punish innocent people than to let the guilty go free. Well, turns out a majority of Americans may not agree. In a series of recent surveys that polled more than 12,000 people, law professors Brandon Garrett and Gregory Mitchell found that more than 60% of Americans, quote, consider false acquittals and false convictions to be equally bad outcomes. And a sizable minority viewed wrongful acquittals as worse than wrongful convictions. Mitchell and Garrett also found that in mock trials, those more concerned about wrongful acquittals than wrongful convictions, were more than twice as likely to convict after viewing the same evidence. If real-life jurors are bringing similar attitudes to actual trials, it may contribute to wrongful uh, convictions, and hence the need for a whole lot of exonerations. Now, how many people are being exonerated? How many people do you think, you know, we hear these stories all the time, I talk about them pretty often, of people that are in prison wrongfully and only get out after new evidence comes to light. Well, there were a record 268 exonerations last year in 2022. Last week, uh, the Marshall Project shared the story of Erlene Brooks Colbert, whose brother and son, Elvis Brooks and Cedric Dent, accounted for two of those exonerations. Imagine that. A a father and son, both wrongfully convicted and imprisoned, both men convicted primarily on eyewitness identification, which contributes to an overwhelming majority of wrongful convictions. That's not me saying this. That's the good folks over at the Innocence Project saying this. That was also the case for uh, somebody by the name of Jason Hogan. And what happened with Jason Hogan was... Quite interesting. 
he was exonerated for a 2000 kidnapping and robbery in Colorado earlier this month. His lawyer said that while reinvestigating the case, it was discovered that police and prosecutors withheld exculpatory evidence, as is common in exoneration cases. The day before Hogan's release, 49-year-old Patrick Brown had a 29-year-old rape conviction vacated in a New Orleans courtroom. Brown was charged with the rape of his stepdaughter, who has always maintained that Brown was not the man who abused her. She wrote over 100 letters, mailed them to the DA's office. She went and showed up unannounced to talk to someone and was turned around. Uriah Courtney, who was exonerated in 2013, spoke to an outlet called The Appeal about the lasting trauma of the time that he spent in prison on a wrongful conviction for kidnapping and rape. The guy says he got PTSD. Sometimes he's still angry. He lost eight years of his life. And really, that to me is the most important aspect of this, is the time. Now, prison is is terrible. I mean, if even if you belong there, it's a horrible place. But imagine being sent to prison and being forced to stay there for years when you didn't even do anything, or at least not the crime that you were convicted of. So I want to ask you the same question that these, um, these law professors, Brandon Garrett and Gregory Mitchell, asked. What do you think is worse? A... False conviction or a false acquittal? And you can also pick that they're equally bad outcomes. Now, well, I think they're both bad outcomes, in my view, because of that phrase by Sir William Blackstone, which I always agree with. I think it is a far, far worse thing to have a false conviction as opposed to a false acquittal. And that doesn't mean I want people that are guilty going out there on the streets and possibly committing no new crimes. But 98% of the people that are in prison now are are there because they took guilty pleas. Very few people actually go to trial. I think a lot of the people that are listening to us in prison right now are probably there because they took a guilty plea. So the the, the pressure to plea is overwhelming. And I do think that if you know you committed a crime, even like we spoke with George Papadopoulos 24 hours ago, he, I and I believe him, he believes he didn't commit a crime. And he still took a guilty plea because of the time and expense that was involved with fighting your case when you could all just be over and done with in a relatively short amount of time. Where do you come down? What's worse, a false conviction or a false acquittal? Or are they equally bad outcomes? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Or, um, and furthermore, seeing this data that I just read to you, that the mock trial jurors that are more concerned with false acquittals than false convictions are more likely to acquit. Is that creating a situation in our jury system where a lot of people end up in prison when they shouldn't be? Because I read all these stories about people that spend five years, eight years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years behind bars for crimes they didn't commit, and it just makes me want to weep. 
And but that's not to say that I don't weep for people that are victims of assault, of rape, family members of murder victims whose person remains at large because you got to understand when someone is in prison for a crime they didn't commit, genuinely didn't commit, that also means that the person that did commit that crime is probably still at large. And to me, a false conviction is doubly worse because it means, one, an innocent man is in prison, and two, a guilty person is out of prison. If there's a false acquittal, you just have the one. You have a guilty person out on the streets. So uh, that's why I think a false conviction is far, far worse than a false acquittal. And because if someone's in prison wrongfully, you're not just punishing them, you're punishing their whole family. You're punishing the son that doesn't get to grow up with his father. You're punishing the wife that doesn't get to uh, spend time with her husband. It's just a tremendous tragedy, as far as I'm concerned. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Christopher, Gu- Christopher Dunn was also convicted without any physical evidence. And the two eyewitnesses who tied Dunn to a 1990 St. Louis murder have since recanted. On Monday, then St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner filed a motion to vacate Dunn's conviction. As it turned out, it would be one of Gardner's last acts in office. She resigned the following day. Uh, she is, uh, she's is she got a, a lot of issues, let's say. I don't want to get into her whole situation, but I was glad that, that she at least moved forward with vacating this particular conviction. 800-848-9222-12345-6 open lines. Lee Fang joins us in a moment. Uh, Eddie is in Nassau. Hello there, Eddie. Uh, Good morning, Frank. What about all of those prisoners that are sitting in Washington jails and Hillary Clinton is out getting her legs waxed? What, What about them? What about them? They're not there for insurrection. They're there for trespassing, which is a bunch of bunk. All right, and uh, thank you. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Good evening, Frank. You know, actually, you're asking the wrong question, okay? What you really should be asking is, which is preferable, a plea bargain deal with a guilty person or a false acquittal of a guilty person? Well, no, uh, but, that but that's not what I'm asking, though. I'm asking what's ro- what's what's worse, a false conviction oh, or me, a first acquittal? Well, to me, that's a no-brainer. Of course, of course, falsely convicting an innocent person. Great. I mean, that's a no-brainer. But I want to bring another point in. But forty percent, forty percent of Americans disagree with us, Larry. Well, let me tell you why it's true. Because, if, because first of all, the worst thing in the world is a plea bargain. If if you have a guilty person and he does less time than he's supposed to do or gets off with a slap on the wrist, goes to jail for le- a small amount of time, he thinks he's beating the system. But if he goes through a, a lengthy criminal trial where he's at jeopardy, OK, that scares the you know living daylights out of him because he knows he's facing a long prison term. And if he's acquitted, he'll probably never do do again because of the um, 
Uh, well, talk that, about that's, that's actually an interesting point, uh, Larry. But, you know, I think a lot. Thank you for the call, Larry. I think the um, what you bring up about plea bargaining is an interesting thing because we do see what they call the so-called trial tax, where you have a whole bunch of people who end up taking guilty pleas because they essentially roll the dice. They don't want to face a 20-year sentence if they're convicted at trial when they could take instead a a five-and-a-half-year sentence by taking a plea bargain. I've seen this with a lot of people I know, a lot of friends of mine. It's very rare to see something go to trial. And the reason they do that is because if everyone took their cases to trial, the system would collapse. You, there, there are not the resources, the prosecutors, the judges, the public defenders, the uh, court security officers, the marshals. There are not the resources in the court system, either on the federal level or on state level, to allow all of these criminal trials and these criminal cases to be heard. They don't exist. So um, that's why they offer such lucrative deals to people that are willing to take those plea bargains. Because if everybody charged with a crime decided that, hey, you know what? We're going to trial. The system would stop. It couldn't couldn't continue. That's why a lot of the um, Occupy Wall Street protesters... One of the things that they had tried when a lot of them were arrested for protesting and they were basically offered a, uh, a, a, a desk appearance ticket or something along those lines, basically what they were trying for a time was something called Occupy the Courts. And a lot of them said, you know what, we're all taking our case to trial and we're going to force the, the system to prove our guilt. And you know what? A lot of them, I think, in fact, the vast majority of them, the vast majority of them saw their cases dismissed because the DA and the court system did not have the means to prosecute all these people. And uh, I really give credit to anybody that ends up going to trial for that very reason, because it takes a lot of gumption. It takes a lot of onions to be able to, one, it costs a lot more money. Two, it really does significantly increase your chances of being imprisoned for many, many years. So uh, I'd love to hear your take. 800-848-9222. What's worse, a false conviction or a false acquittal and why? I've given you my answer. Tell me yours. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. In about 10 minutes, we're going to talk with uh, Lee Fang. Lee Fang is one of the greatest independent journalists in the country today. I'll tell you, one of the most fascinating things uh, that we are seeing is this movement towards independent journalism. There's so many great independent journalists out there. I'm sure there are a lot of not-so-great independent journalists, but I really find a lot of the journalists that I follow and whose journalism I take seriously, people like uh, Matt Taibbi, people like Michael Tracy, people like Gerald Salente, although he's maybe more of a, uh, a commentator, uh, people like, uh, w- whether it's podcasters, whether it's print, whether it's um, whatever the case may be, the independent journalism, I think, is where it's at. Even people, big names like Bill O'Reilly, they've chosen chosen to go the independent route rather than be beholden to these corporate media overlords. And that's why I think it's going to be very interesting to see what uh, what Tucker Carlson 
does now, and if he goes that route as well. But anyway, Lee Fang is one of the uh, one of the great people doing that. He's going to join me in about uh, in about ten minutes. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Carl is in Virginia. Hello, Carl. Hey, Frank. Yes, Carl. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Okay, good. Yeah, you guys. I tell you, I feel bad for you guys up in New York. I'm Italian like you. Um, now, well, you don't I have to feel to, bad I mean, for us because we're Italian. No, because you're living in hell. I mean, what's going on there with uh, the crime? And you guys, in fact, O'Reilly on his show this evening, he talked about his daughter. He's counseling his daughter. You can't be out after dark. You can't take the subway at night. But I want to also mention, I talked to you about two or three weeks ago. <laughs> you got that Curtis Sliwa. And remember, he kind of like um, uh, slaughtered you. He, he was making fun of you about... Um, uh, something about I think you took a drink uh, uh, and you took it out of a bar and somebody chased you up to wherever <laughs> we were in Manhattan. I want you to get back at him. What you tell him is this: now he has, I'm, I, he's interesting, and on a bigger context, what's going on in D.C. Because I'm originally from D.C. That the famous uh, Jim Jordan he revealed these FBI uh, whistleblowers are heroes, and he revealed here in Richmond that. Six in the FBI office here in Richmond, including the council, signed on to put plants in Catholic churches to see who the pro-lifers are, who the uh, pro-family are, almost just like a hit list of the KGB. And, uh, and I believe that stopped, but that was already in the works just a few months ago before those guys came out. But more, more importantly, the way you get back at Curtis. First of all, I, I mean, I, I, Carl, I honestly, I don't stuff. care. I don't care to get back at Curtis. What? I'm not interested uh, in you talking Thank about? you. Corey is in Palm Bay. Hello, Corey. Hello, Frank. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, false conviction is uh, worse than false acquittal. And, and I think it has a lot to do with our criminal justice system and the whole justice system entirely. Um, I was arrested once, and I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I did not have a lawyer. I had a public defendant, and I went to one courthouse to be arraigned. Now, when I got a lawyer, I went to a different courthouse. And so the whole thing was rigged to begin with. The lawyers know the judges, all this, and if you don't have the money to pay millions of dollars, then the the deal, you know, sounds good to a lot of people. And, you know, definitely I'd rather, you know, one person, one innocent person, it's not worth 99 guilty people going free. Well, or other way around. Uh, but um, Other way around, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I am with you, Corey. And the point that you bring up about the resources necessary to uh, to fight for your innocence, even if you are innocent, is such a good point. Because let's say you're charged with Tremendous. a crime. Let's say you're charged with a crime. If you're O.J. Simpson and you can afford the best lawyers in the world and the best resources in the world and the best investigators in the world, and you can go dollar for dollar, head to head with the government, and all things are equal, you can beat the government. But most people 
can't do that. And so most people, they look at the prospect. If you read Bernie Carrick's book, he gets into this. His lawyer basically handed him, in the middle of him fighting his case, a million-dollar legal bill. And whatever people think about Bernie Carrick, most people don't have the million dollars to spend on their defense. So a lot of people think, okay, well, do I want to deprive, do I want to force my family to sell their home? Do I want to deprive my family of uh, our whole life savings just so I can prove my innocence or do I want to go ahead and take a plea? And I think a lot of people, even if they end up they end up being innocent, they end up taking that plea. And that is the fundamental thing that needs to change. And you alluded to the public defenders. And um, I'm not sure, what state were you prosecuted in? Was it Florida or was it New York? It was Nassau County. Okay, so Nassau has had a lot of particularly uh, thorny issues over the years. But... In the there are a lot of very good public defenders. But the bottom line is there is such a dearth of public defenders that um, it's not unusual in a state like New York to see one lawyer working on 100 or more cases simultaneously. And I don't care if you're the best lawyer in the world. There is no way that one person can properly service a hundred different clients simultaneously. It can't be done. So um, that is something that absolutely needs to change. You know, I asked F. Lee Bailey about this one time, speaking of OJ, and what he said what they do in the military, because he was in the military prior to uh, going into private practice, is they make it so that prosecutors and defense attorneys actually end up going back and forth. And he felt that that led to both sides tending to play a bit more fair with one another. Now, I don't know. Yeah, I I liked it. I liked it as well. That would make a lot of sense. And, And I don't know how it would work in a practical sense, but I think something like that is worth, uh, is worth ascribing to. I'm sorry you had a a tough time with your own situation, Corey. Thanks for sharing that. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You know, the other thing I wanted to mention before we get to Lee Fang is there's now a movement to have, well, you know, maybe we'll hold off on this because it is interesting. But um, in L.A., there is a plan to stop traffic deaths. You know what the plan is? It's to let civilians enforce traffic violations. I'm not joking. So most traffic enforcement in L.A., according to this one study, should be done by civilian workers, but only in tandem with major infrastructure upgrades that improve safety along city streets. Those are the conclusions of a long-delayed report from the city transportation department that has yet to be released. Now, I can't imagine what the details of that document say, but I can't imagine that going very well. How often do we hear of somebody that gets pulled over for a routine traffic stop and then Things go haywire, not necessarily only for the person that's pulled over, but sometimes for the police officer. Is that really something that we think civilians are up to? I'm not so sure. But the L.A. Times reviewed a draft of this document, which is being produced by an outside firm, and it's been in the works for nearly three years. And the debate over what role police should have in enforcing traffic safety comes amidst an alarming year-long rise in road deaths and injuries. 
So uh, I don't know what the solution is on that front, but I'm not sure this is it. All right. Lee Fang is here. I am very excited to talk with him. Um, He is uh, one of the best independent journalists around. He is one of the finest investigative reporters there are. He's done some great work, including some work related to the criminal justice system. We're going to try and pick his brain on a, a bunch of different uh, a bunch of different issues in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I really um, think that the most exciting thing happening in journalism right now is the rise of the independent journalism, the independent journalist and independent journalism. There are so many uh, terrific independent journalists out there covering stories that are ignored by the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, and Fox News. And that's not to say you shouldn't be watching MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, reading the New York Times, reading the New York Post. I certainly uh, try and read as many different mainstream outlets I can. But there's this whole cadre of folks out there that are finding the stories, putting the time in, and digging deep into the stories that you won't see in the mainstream media. One of those people is uh, Lee Fang. He is a, a veteran journalist, an independent report, an investigative reporter par excellence. He's now doing some great work on uh, on Substack. You can apply and subscribe by going to LeeFang.com. That's F-A-N-G.com. We're going to tell you about some of the stories he's been breaking of late. Lee, I'm a big fan of your work. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, Frank. Nice to be here with you. Lee, uh, before we get into some of the stories that you've been covering lately, tell me what you see as sort of the future of the media. Do you see, do you share any of my optimism that the work that you're doing, the work that Matt Taibbi are doing, the work uh, that people like Glenn Greenwald are doing, that it could actually lead to a much better media space in journalism for the consumer? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm biased here. I'm in the independent space, and I appreciate the plug you provided earlier in the show. Um, but you know, I I kind of also agree with your analysis too. You know, you don't want to get all your news from just a small group of publishers from outlets. You want to have a mix of mainstream newspapers and independent outside voices, smaller outlets, so you can really understand what's going on because no one has a monopoly on the truth. 
um, a lot of these issues that we're confronting as a country are big and complex. And, you know, there are a lot of partisan voices out there. There's a lot of propaganda out there to kind of cut through the noise. You do need people on the outside who, you know, they aren't kind of tethered to some billionaire or advertising pressure or, you know, some kind of ideological pressure. That's a big part of the problem in newsrooms today. So, yeah, the independent wave of reporters, and I, I guess I'm, I'm part of that, um, I, I think that can provide um, more solutions for people, you know, more opportunities to get out of the, the duopoly of just, you know, you know, the, Fox News and MSNBC are, are two partisan outlets that often have a lot of yelling at each other. There's some good work that are done by both outlets. But again, you need you need outside voices. And I think the the public recognizes that according to a recent Gallup survey, they found trust in media is so low that half of Americans now believe that news organizations deliberately mislead them. Any advice to news consumers about how they know whether they can trust what they're reading, seeing or listening to? How do you determine what what sources you can trust? You know, it's not really fair to compare myself with, you know, you know, someone's, you know, a nurse, uh, a, you know, a, driving a bus, what have you, has a, a regular job. Um, they're not like me. You know, every every news or story I see, I try to figure out how they got that story. You know, what document did they use? Who do they talk to? I try to, you know, read, I, I subscribe to tons of different outlets and I'm comparing and contrasting. But that's that's not advice I can give to a, a normal Right. They don't have four hours to spend uh, researching after they read an article. That's true. Uh, But uh, all right. Let me ask you about a story that you brought to my attention uh, a few days ago, which uh, I think is great. And uh, well, it's not great that it happened. It's great that I learned about it from you. And to be clear, the big tech companies did a whole bunch of layoffs. It seemed like we were hearing about this each week. Google, Amazon, Facebook, all sorts of other firms laid off all sorts of workers. Now we've seen that uh, they are doing something else to make up for that shortfall in their recently laid off labor force. What are they doing? Well, um, you know, just as these big tech companies were announcing unprecedented layoffs earlier this year, starting in January, uh, around the same time in February and March, uh, the same companies were discreetly applying to the uh, Labor Department for special visas for foreign workers, uh, high-tech workers, uh, to come in and, and work at their firms as you know, variety of jobs, uh, programming, software development, uh, what have you. And uh, you know, it, it's under this program called the H-1B. This is something that we've had since the early 90s. It was introduced as a program to kind of just fill this technical skills gap that exists in the American workforce that, you know, if you're a very specialized firm and you can't find, you know, enough computer science grads or other kind of very technical roles, then you can go to China or India or whatever other country and, and bring over uh, uh, workers on a temporary basis. Well, this program has ballooned over the last uh, 30 years. Um, there are now 600,000 H-1B workers and tech companies, there's a long history of them exploiting it as a as a way to undercut wages to kind of bring in uh, a, a more pliable, cheaper workforce to replace their American workforce. So they've laid off all these American workers and they're asking for special permission from the government to bring in foreign workers 
to more cheaply do the job of the workers they just laid off? Look, you know, we don't know if it's like a one-to-one replacement that, you know, the exact person, you know, that was just laid off, you know, it's a foreign worker that's brought in doing the exact same role. But look, these these H-1B visas are not supposed to be given out, not in the spirit of the law, not in the letter of the law, uh, when there are qualified Americans that are available to do the same position. Now, there are tens of thousands of American tech workers who are just laid off at the same time these um, tech companies are using these foreign visas, it doesn't sound like they're far, following at least the spirit of the law. Um, they could probably find American workers for these gigs. Uh, talking with Lee Fang, you can check out his website and uh, subscribe to his newsletter at leefang.com. That's F-A-N-G.com. We've spent a lot of time on this program exploring the military-industrial complex and exploring the so-called national security state. Uh, You had a fascinating article about how the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI are depicting some vegan activists as potential domestic terrorists. Fill us in here, Lee. Who are these uh, vegan activists, and how do we know they're not domestic terrorists? Well, look, uh, you know, after September 11th, you know, we created the Department of Homeland Security. You know, FBI kind of had this expanded partnerships with local law enforcement, this joint uh, terrorism task force. Uh, There's been a hunt for terrorism. That's certainly a, a threat that this country faces. But if you actually dig through the documents, you look at how the government's treating these activist groups. Um, I'm not sure if it, a lot of the activity that the government is is tagging as uh, terrorism uh, meets that definition. And just to kind of give you an example, you know, I, I recently obtained some documents looking at a workshop that the, the, the Department of Homeland Security ran on potential domestic terrorists that, you know, their, their domestic terrorist uh, prevention program. And it was uh, that ran in some scenarios of, of, you know, um, you know, a conservative housewife who, you know, is concerned about the unborn uh, pro-life activist. That's a potential domestic terrorist or, uh, you know, a young woman who goes to college, learns about factory farming and feels upset about animal cruelty and joins some protests. Now, look, you don't have to agree with either of these views, sure. but those are First Amendment protected uh, forms of speech. You're allowed to criticize any type of behavior, policy, or politic uh, in, in this country, and the government should not be treating you as a terrorist. Um, that's a red line. And, you know, uh, just th- these documents that I recently published, they fit a larger pattern. You know, in the last few years, I've been reporting on this. I published a number of other FBI documents, an internal memo, including, including an internal memo from the Sacramento FBI field office, where they took a look at uh, this Berkeley-based animal rights group, uh, Direct Action Everywhere. Now, this is a controversial group. Um, they kind of believe in direct action and, no- and nonviolent civil disobedience and kind of interrupting the actions of the the, the, the business of factory farming. They go in, They w- w- this is their, their terminology, they rescue animals that are being treated inhumanely. They expose uh, companies that they say are lying to consumers, you know, some, some um, Egg producers say that they, you know, use only cage-free, produce cage-free eggs, or you know, they they abide by certain standards. And then, you know, these activists try to expose the actual conditions in these facilities. Now, that's all well and good, but you know, you, you, you again, you may agree or disagree with these tactics. Sure. But again, 
are, is this terrorism? The, the FBI field offices uh, depicted this group as a bioterrorism threat in one of their, their memos. Um, it's, it's kind of inflated, uh, very emotional, very kind of uh, heightened rhetoric that, again, I, I, you know, this is a local law enforcement issue. If they, if they engaged in trespass or burglary or whatever, uh, is it an FBI terrorism threat? I'm not so sure about that. From your research and from your review of the documents that you've looked at, is there any difference in priority on the part of the FBI or the Department of Homeland Security along ideological lines? For instance, is the uh, pro-life conservative housewife more likely than the left-wing animal rights activist to be viewed as a domestic terrorist, or is the FBI just as quick to label a right-winger a domestic terrorist as a left-winger? Well, I don't have a direct answer to that because I don't know. You know, I, I only have the documents that I've obtained through leaks or, you know, through you know litigation and record requests. I don't have a full view of, you know, all their decisions, so I, I don't want to speak on that. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, just like any law enforcement agency, like any prosecutor's office, there's a lot of discretion there. There's a lot of, um, you know, how, how do you deploy your resources in a way that actually stops crime, that stops terrorism? And, you know, I did, I did a story a few years ago looking at the Iowa, the Des Moines field office for the FBI and how they put so many resources in partnering with a pork industry producer to uh, recruit an informant to, to go into an animal rights group and try to, you know, um, sell the animal rights groups uh, illegal guns and drugs to kind of entrap them. You know, this this kind of uh, sophisticated FBI sting. Uh, you know, it's it's a strange kind of deployment of resources, given the other kind of potential actual terrorist threats that this country faces. And in terms of ideological filtering, you know, I, I don't know about um, uh, all the different kind of app- appendage, uh, the apparatus of the DHS. And FBI, but in terms of their uh, efforts in the 2020 election, the Department of Homeland Security absolutely took a more partisan role in their efforts to fight disinformation. You know, they, they partnered with a, uh, a a Stanford think tank that then worked with the DNC, but not the RNC, in flagging potential misinformation. So, in, in that narrow case, in terms of their the, the Department of Homeland Security's fight against disinformation on social media, there was kind of a, an, an ideological tilt. Hmm. Uh, towards at least the Democratic Party against the Republicans on these other issues on pro-life activism, animal rights. You know, it, it's it's really hard to say. You know, we've seen kind of what looks like discriminatory behavior by the FBI um, against certain, uh, you know, Muslim Americans, other, other groups. But, you know, I, again, I, I, I wouldn't want to... Um, to say unless I had more information. Uh, Talking with Lee Fang, you could check out some of his reporting at LeeFang.com. Speaking of the FBI and how they approach certain investigations, how they build certain investigations, and where that evidence comes from, you had a fascinating piece about the private spies that get hired by the FBI and uh, what they then do in terms of infiltrating entities like WhatsApp, like Reddit. What is a threat intelligence firm? What do they do and what does the FBI use them for? Well, this is a subset of the cybersecurity industry. And I'm glad you mentioned, I just published a two-part series on this on my Substack. You know, this is, you know, you hear cybersecurity, you might think, you know, encryption or, you know, better passwords or something. But no, this is actually a 
specialized type of firm that engages in a certain type of surveillance. Um, these are companies like Zero Fox, like Flashpoint. Uh, they create online aliases, online personas that go on the internet and, and find the kind of corners of the internet that you can't see publicly. You know, they, they gain the trust of, um, you know, chat room moderators, message board moderators, uh, people who run various uh, discussion groups, um, perhaps on Reddit or perhaps on the dark web. And then they, they, they gain access to these chat groups. Then they download all the conversations and they sell them to their various clients. So these firms are often um, employed by law enforcement and the FBI, but they also work for corporations because corporations are on the hunt for potential hackers, for cyber criminals. Um, but there's also the, again, the, the issue of, of activists. You know, if you're a big corporate corporation or the government and you're wondering uh, what activists are doing, how they're kind of planning their demonstrations, what they're, what they're doing, uh, these are firms that are tapped uh, to monitor uh, their 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 private communications, and this raises all kinds of civil liberty concerns because you know if you're in a private WhatsApp chat, if you're in a private Signal chat, you know that's that's your own private communication. The government, you know that that raises Fourth Amendment concerns. You know they need a warrant if it's a, your private communication. But for these kind of private sector spies, these online spies, these threat intelligence contractors, you know they're kind of operating in this gray area where they're going into these communications and. Um, you know, looking for quote unquote threat actors, um, whatever, whoever that may be. And then they're they're going to their clients and saying, hey, these are the potential threats. Yeah. And uh, just from how I would communicate with someone that I think shares the same views as I do on, I don't know, a- animal rights or bringing back tab soda. If I'm in one of these chat rooms, <laughs> I'm going to communicate with that person a whole lot more differently, a whole lot uh, more um, a whole lot in a less guarded manner than in if I'm hauled to an FBI field office or a police station and interrogated by a law enforcement official. I'm going to take a whole different approach and uh, may say something unwittingly that's uh, incriminating. But I guess that's what the point that the FBI is uh, is trying to do here. Yeah, I mean, it might be difficult to use those kind of communications in a, in a court case because if they didn't get a warrant first, it, it might be difficult. But just to kind of get that preliminary investigation to understand what different activists and, you know, quote unquote extremist groups are doing. Yeah. They can gather a lot of intelligence if they're faking, you know, membership in an online community or, you know, real community that has an online presence and then getting access because those are intimate conversations. Those are discussions, not just between members, but also, you know, discussions of tactics and plans. Uh, it, it It could apply to so many groups. I mean, we profiled, on the Substack, uh, one uh, one threat intelligence contractor that basically we 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 got one of their videos that showed that they they were bragging that they got into the private Telegram, which is like a kind of another WhatsApp uh, uh, phone application, the private chats of workers who are organizing against the vaccine mandates. These were airline workers, people who were stewardesses and uh, pilots and what have you, and you know they were organizing their strategy back in 2021 because a lot of these groups you know, oppose the vaccine mandate. And, um, you know, this firm Flashpoint, which is contracted by the FBI and they have other clients, corporate clients as well, or we're showing off that they could get into these chat groups. And you know, of course, that, that's a more kind of conservative, or at least, you know, there are both left-wing and right-wing sure. groups that have protested the mandates, but that's at least kind of publicly seen as a more conservative movement. But Flashpoint also brags that they they infiltrate 
uh, left-wing uh, anti-pipeline environmental activists too. You know, so it's it's kind of it's both sides that are being spied upon. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's really alarming. I, I think most people wouldn't take issue with the FBI finding someone that's willing to uh, try to uh, try to per- penetrate the conversations of an Al Qaeda terrorist or an ISIS te- mm-hmm. ter- terrorist. But then all of a sudden you say we're using those same tactics and in some cases those same people and same firms to go out and investigate anti-vaccine mandate activists. That's a it's a totally different level. I think in uh, in some people's in some people's mind. Hey, uh, before we run out of time, Lee, uh, one of the stories that we've been covering a great deal, not just us, but I think every talk station in America is the uh, the situation involving crime in a lot of our cities. And uh, you're in San Francisco. There's been a lot of issues with crime, and um, apparently the police in San Francisco had a very interesting response to a homeowner after he suffered eight separate break-ins. What did the uh, San Francisco police tell this particular homeowner? Well, um, this homeowner who's actually suffered an additional (laughs) attempted break-in since I reported the story... um, he he had he had called the police over and over again um over the previous attempted and actual break ins you know in, in several of these instances um in, these are these are not just like an individual these these are planned attacks you know in one case there were two cars that showed up uh a group of criminals ransacked the home you know took the washer and dryer and uh, and then a, a bunch of other appliances and tools you know this is a home under renovation and, and brought them out to the two trucks that were waiting outside. Another time it was in broad daylight, three guys coming up. Uh, one of them appeared to be armed uh, and, and broke in during the day. You know, after all these calls to the police, one officer finally showed up after the eighth break-in. And um, he said, look, there's nothing we can do. We, we can't, we don't have the resources to go after these, these types of criminals. Maybe you should hire uh, private security. Wow. So that was the response from the police department is maybe there's nothing we can do. Maybe you should hire private security. Look, I was in Brazil earlier this year and, you know, it's a very unequal society. There are places that um, are very crime ridden that have a lot of public safety issues. And then there are wealthier areas and everyone has, you know, gigantic fences and, 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 you know, elaborate security systems and private security and it's, you know, it's kind of jarring to see, but it, it feels a little bit like we're moving in that direction yeah. here in this country. It sure does. I'll tell you, you see the same thing to some extent in uh, certain neighborhoods in New York. Lee, I enjoyed the conversation very much, and uh, I would love to have you come back uh, soon and often because there's a lot of other issues I'd love to pick your brain on. This was really great. Frank, thank you so much for what you're doing, and thanks for having me on. Thank you. Lee Fang, check him out. Uh, check out his Substack. I subscribe to it at LeeFang.com. It's L-E-E-F-A-N-G.com. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could do so at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Uh, this is, of course, the Bee Gees, uh, one of the catchiest songs of all time. Am I right? Um, if you want to know what kind of music we play on this program, join our Facebook group. Go to Facebook and just type Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. You also want to follow our Facebook page. You know, I, I first of all, I hope never to be fired because I, I love this job and hope to do it for the rest of my life. But... Um, if I'm ever fired, I would love to be able to make a living as an, an independent content creator, right? Like Lee Fang is. And I mean, I don't know if he's making a living, but I assume he is, or Glenn Greenwald and some of these other people. So I was looking on the Facebook, and uh, you could subscribe to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Morano fan. And it came up with an option of monetize your videos. And apparently, the I was looking on there. And I have to have a minimum of 10,000 followers uh, to monetize that. And you've got to have something like 600,000 minutes of video watched. So do me a favor. It's in order to help me make money with these Facebook videos, go to Facebook.com slash MoranoFan, click like, and go to videos. Just watch all the videos. Not during the show, but after the show. Watch all the videos. And share them on your timeline. This way, it gets me closer to that point of uh, being able to make money in terms of making these videos. There's a very interesting interview. I'll play for it for you a little later that Megyn Kelly did with Dan Bongino about kind of the future of media and independent media and where we're going. I really think this is the most exciting thing happening in in, in media these days that – Everybody with a smartphone now has the ability to be to reach as many people as the biggest TV network or the biggest TV station in the world. And uh, I think that's exciting. It's also potentially pretty dangerous uh, for a lot of the same reasons that it offers some promise. All right. um, What I'm also doing today 
and this is the reason we only had one guest, because I have a list of things that I might talk about on any given show, and I keep adding to this list. This list has now grown to 25 pages. Now, I have to do something about this. So what I think we're going to do is I'm going to try and get to as many of these news stories as we can today, as many of these topics as we can today, and then after this, it's all out of here. Until next hour, to be continued. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. has expanded and uh, there is a new officially announced Republican presidential candidate. Now, the way I view the uh, presidential race on the Republican side is I really think it's Trump's to lose. Could Trump uh, really badly stumble and um, and and lose it? Maybe. Maybe. And probably the person at this point who's best in a position to capitalize on that is DeSantis, who looks to be running in a matter of days. It looks like Chris Christie, who I think is going nowhere in a hurry. I don't care if Anthony Scaramucci supports him. I don't care if the owner of the Mets supports him. I don't care who supports him. I don't see any potential marketplace for Chris Christie among the voters. But... Um, It looks like, assuming Trump remains healthy and assume he doesn't get uh, too frustrated or go broke fighting all these investigations that he's dealing with, these criminal investigations, assuming that Trump is in this race, I I don't see how Trump loses the nomination. Now, everyone always says that before they lose a nomination. So it's that degree of hubris on the part of the Trump people that he needs to guard against. He needs to fight for this nomination as if he's 10 points behind. But uh, just viewing it as an, an, as an analyst, I think that Trump is in a very good position to win the Republican nomination. General election, different ballgame. Different ballgame in the general election. Tim Scott has entered the GOP presidential race. He is a Republican senator from South Carolina. It's interesting. You know who appointed him to the Senate. I'm sure a lot of you do. The person that appointed Tim Scott to the U.S. Senate it was none other than Nikki Haley. And now here Tim Scott is running against Nikki Haley. And it's very similar to what happened with, um, not exactly similar, but somewhat similar to what happened with Trump and DeSantis. One of the things that Trump says about DeSantis, and he's right about this in my judgment, is that DeSantis was probably not going to win that Republican primary for governor of Florida, but for Trump. 
Trump interceded on his behalf and endorsed him, campaigned for him in both the primary and the general, and DeSantis won by the skin of his teeth. And I believe he owes that victory to Trump. And I do think it is a little disloyal. Now, look, you want politics is not the field that's known for loyalty. I do think it's a little disloyal on the part of DeSantis to then run against the guy that he owes his whole political career to, especially when DeSantis is as young as he is. But well, that's for the voters to decide. Tim Scott is doing that same thing. The person that made him the first or the only black Republican U.S. senator, not the first, but the only black Republican U.S. senator, the person who gave him that opportunity was Nikki Haley. And I would think if I was Tim Scott, I would owe a little bit of something to Nikki Haley. It's almost, you know, I have made, um, I've been very open about uh, one of the fellas that uh, has been very good to me in the field of talk radio as a mentor, as a guy that's helped me a lot behind the scenes, as a guy that's fought for me to have a lot of opportunities, is Curtis Sliwa, right? So I would not then go try to steal Curtis's job or uh, try to prevent him from getting a job that I knew that he wanted. And I think to some extent, Tim Scott, who I like, actually, Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis are largely doing that same thing. But the way I view the race, I'm going to get back to the Tim Scott thing in a second. As I said, I have 25 pages worth of news stories and topics that I'm going to make an effort to get to today. I'm not going to get to all 25 pages worth, but we're going to we're going to bounce around quite a bit today. So um, this is one of those days where if no one calls, I don't mind because we have 12 hours worth of content to get to. And we're going to have to spin the wheel of, of topics to find out what we're actually going to try and get to. But the the thing, the way I view the primary is there are three lanes, maybe four, but I think there's three. There is the lane for Donald Trump, the lane for Ron DeSantis. And then there's the ra- the one lane for a third candidate that's the non-DeSantis, non-Trump. And I think everybody recognizes that. And there's a lot of candidates trying to occupy that third lane. You have Nikki Haley. You have uh, Mike Pence. You have uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. And now, entering into that equation, you have Tim Scott. There's two things that I want to follow up on from last hour before we... Uh, before we go on to the Tim Scott situation. And if you want to comment on Tim Scott, you're welcome to at 800-848-9222 because I think he's an interesting candidate for a whole host of reasons, which I'll get into in a moment. But one of the things that I find interesting about Tim Scott is that Donald Trump, unlike what he has done to Ron DeSantis, who he calls Ron DeSanctimonious, every day just viciously tearing DeSantis apart on Trump social or truth social. He was very kind to Tim Scott. Didn't say anything bad about him at all. Not only is Trump saying all sorts of negative things about DeSanctimonious, but he's taking out all sorts of negative ads all over cable, bashing everything DeSanctimonious has ever done. One time, I think he was in the sixth grade, he ate pudding with his fingers. Trump takes an ad out on him. His support for the fair tax, which we'll get into in a minute. He is hitting to sanctimonious on every possible issue. I think he's ready to team up with Disney. They're going to launch a new Star Wars movie where the villain is Darth Santis. So anyway, uh, before we get on to that, the Tim Scott situation, 
who I think actually may, depending on how well he does, and if he doesn't bash Trump, I think Tim Scott may find himself on the short list for being Donald Trump's running mate. Curious where you see that going. If not, if he manages to escape this primary season largely unscathed, I could see him coming back in four years from now as a major Republican presidential candidate. I mean, tell me where, where, where you see it going. 800-848-9222. One thing I want to say is that one caller that was a little all over the place, one thing that he said that I, I again, I didn't want to belabor the point because the call was already going on forever, is that he said, oh, I'm broadcasting from New York, which he called hell. What does he know? Being in Virginia, I mean, don't go by what you hear on radio or see on television or read in the newspaper about what New York is like. Let me tell you something. I I am in New York every day. It is a great city. It is the greatest city in the world in every respect. Are there things that could use improvement? Absolutely. But do not call my city hell. I'm sure there are plenty of different neighborhoods in the Commonwealth of Virginia that aren't exactly uh, idyllic rose gardens so um new york is a wonderful place i will hold new york up to any city in virginia any day of the week i'm proud to be a new yorker proud to work here proud to live here proud to raise my son here and i will i don't care how much it costs to live here and it is it does cost a fortune to live here but it's a wonderful city i love this city it's not hell and uh i i think it says a lot about the kind of people that would say that about a city that they don't even live in, and I question whether or not they have the expertise to even make that judgment. I think they're doing it based on New York Post front pages and things they've heard about what's going on here. New York is a wonderful city. Now, the other thing I wanted to just close the loop on independent media, which I do think is a pretty exciting opportunity in terms of what's happening now. Um, Megyn Kelly, who, after leaving Fox, went to NBC... And NBC didn't work out so well for her. After leaving NBC, she launched her own independent media outlet, basically doing what Bill O'Reilly does. It does air on places like Sirius and others, but this is all produced by her. And in partnership with whoever sells the ads, she gets to keep all the money. So, And she's doing great. I, I think she's making over a half million dollars just on the YouTube ad sales, plus whatever she gets paid from Sirius, plus whatever she gets paid from her podcast. So she's doing really well, as is O'Reilly. Again, I don't know how much, but I think that really is the direction of the future. And one guy that also just left Fox, and I think it was sort of a mutual parting of the ways, was uh, Dan Bongino. And again, whatever you think about Dan Bongino, He is very popular. He was popular on the Fox News Channel. He has a nationally syndicated radio program, which is very popular. And Dan Bongino was uh, on Megyn Kelly's program, I think on Thursday or Friday, talking about the state of the media today. Sort of just to follow up on the last conversation that I had with with, um, Lee Fang. This is what uh, Dan Bongino and Megyn Kelly had to say. You and I both know, Dan, the truth is 95% of the people who are on those cable news lineups right now would do anything to be in your slot or my slot right now. That They want what we have. They want to get out of the thumb um, from underneath the thumb of these big corporate cable giants who dictate what they can say, who they, most of them know the vast majority are platform players. They don't think that they could make it out here without the support of the Fox News digital platform and the, you know, 
the, the cable channel and so on. So it's not available to everybody. But even many of the stars over there will text me and say, like, I'm so envious because you can do it on your own terms. And people, you say that we're on the same time. Nobody even knows that. They just download the Dan, Dan Bongino show. That's what I do. Right. And they can listen to you. They can listen to me. You can listen to it on two point speed so you can get it fast. Way more information than you would get if you were just sitting there watching freaking cable all day. Yeah. You are so spot on to your audience. Megan's not lying. I get these texts and phone calls all the time from people from other networks, too. And they say yep. the exact same thing. How do I do that? Do what? Get out on your own. Establish a Rumble, a YouTube, whatever you want to do. Go out there and do your own show that you run, that you sell, that you have maybe a sales agent with at best, but you are in the editor, editor-in-chief of your own show. You run your own business. And very few people would trade the other way. Now, Having a show on Fox or Newsmax is still nice. There are still people who are not that tech savvy. I mean, my my dad, he admitted himself. And I had to coach him through Rumble. It's not complicated, mm-hmm. but he's used to turning on what I call, Megan, the one-button problem. The advantage yeah. Newsmax and Fox still have over us is there's a generation of 40-plus, me included, are not that tech savvy. They are used to one button. They keep Fox yeah. or Newsmax on all day, and they hit power. I call it the one-button problem. The problem with... Roku and other things, it's not a problem for the kids. They know exactly what to do. Bang, 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 they're done, easy. A lot of folks our age, they, you know, they're not used to that. Oh, what do you mean? I got to go to an app. Where do I find that? And they give up. That's going away. In 10 years, that'll be a non-issue with smart TVs. The grandkids come over and show them one time and they're good. So that's where people like you and I on our own, and you got the people at the Daily Wire who are doing their own thing. That's when I think the cord cutting is going to be apocalyptic. So I think that's very interesting. I'm curious to see where this goes over the course of the next couple of years. I know a lot of people that listen to this program as a podcast. I do prefer people listen live. I also prefer people not uh, speed up the podcast because, um, you know, because I think there's a certain way that I like to structure this show in terms of uh, of time and in terms of intonation, in terms of dramatic pauses. And I don't like p- to the thought of people just fast-forwarding ahead in that kind of a manner. That being said, I really do think that we are on the precipice. We're not on the precipice. We are in the midst of a full-fledged media revolution right now. And uh, I uh, think that we're now in a place where you can... Whatever it is that you want to listen to at whatever time you want to listen to it, you can do that. And I think that really is going to prioritize people creating quality content. That being said, I still think uh, there's a place for radio. And when I say radio, I don't mean audio or just generic content that could be repurposed on digital and on television, I think there's a place for radio, and I think there's a place for live radio. And uh, I think there's room for both, and I'm very proud that I think we do an adequate job servicing both. Now, back to the situation involving Tim Scott. I'm not going to play you his whole announcement, but this was sort of the, the key feature of what Tim Scott had to say in his announcement. I was seven years old when my parents divorced. We moved in with my grandparents, my mom and my brother. We all three shared one bed and one bedroom in that 700-square-foot rental home. But my grandfather said to me, son, you can be bitter 
or you can be better. But you can't be both. You see, he chose patriotism over pity. He focused on the windshield of his life and not on the rearview mirror. And today, I'm living proof that America is the land of opportunity and not a land of oppression. I think there are three big things going for Tim Scott. And I think you heard a bit of it in his announcement yesterday. One is uh, he has a great message. You look at so many other politicians these days, and I would say it's maybe somewhat more prevalent on the right, but not much. I think you look at so many other politicians and they make it sound as if the world is ending, the world is ending soon, and unless you elect me, then the world will end. Tim Scott is taking a much more optimistic tone. Tim Scott is putting, whatever you think of his actual policy prescriptions, tone-wise, it's very different from Trump. It's very different from DeSantis. He's basically taking a attack a, a that almost Reagan-esque, that America is a shining city on a hill and it's going to be a, a pretty good country for a while. And we can add to that greatness. The other interesting thing with Tim Scott is, and he alluded to this a bit in the clip that you just heard, he is making his own personal biography, which is impressive. He's making this a big part of his uh, campaign. Uh, He talks about how he came from very humble origins to make it to Washington, D.C. Listen to this. Today I'm thinking back to my grandfather, born in 1921 in Sally, South Carolina, in the Deep South. By the time he was in the third grade, he was forced out of school. His education was over, and he was forced to start picking cotton. But my grandfather lived long enough to watch his grandson pick out a seat in Congress. That's that's the evolution of the country we live in. My family went from cotton to Congress in his lifetime. I have to tell you, I do think he did a great job marrying his personal narrative to the broader optimistic message in his campaign. And um, that message is really going to resonate with people. I also think that if he's on the ticket, whether he's at the top of the ticket or it's Trump's running mate or even as DeSantis's running mate or whatever, that um, he has the potential to bring a number of black voters over to the Republican side of the aisle that I don't think would necessarily get there if uh, Tim Scott's not on the ticket. This is a big part of what Tim Scott's focusing on. My mom said to me, son, you can be a victim or we can be victors. She chose victorious. Then uh, he goes on talking about that race issue, which he did not shy away from. He leaned into it, but not leaned into it in a way that, say, an Al Sharpton did when he ran for president and making clear that all black people are victims. He said, no, uh, black folks are not necessarily victims of racism. There's a lot more to it than that. For those of you who wonder if America is a racist country, take a look. And how people come together 
All of God's people come together. Black ones and white ones and red ones and brown ones working together because love, unconditional love, binds hearts together. We are not defined by the color of our skin. We are defined by the content of our character. And if anyone tells you anything different, they're a lion. The other thing that Tim Scott has going for him is he's already got $21 million in the bank to spend on this campaign. Now, that's not enough to run a full-fledged national campaign, but it's enough to lay the groundwork, the beginning of the staffing issues, and a whole bunch of other things that you need to sort of start planting the seeds of a presidential campaign. So I think Tim Scott is going to be a very interesting candidate, and I think he may end up as the, uh, if not the nominee, which I think is unlikely, I think he may end up on the ticket as a running mate for someone like Trump. I think he's got the right message for a lot of people. I think, honestly, the fact that he's black, he can make a message um, in terms of how to deal with minority voters that a lot of these crusty old white guys can't necessarily do. I think the fact that he's not uh, all doom and gloom and that the world is going to end and we're going to hell in a handbasket, I think the fact that he takes a much more optimistic tone uh, is uh, very welcome. I find it refreshing. And I think the fact that he is uh, so likable, quite frankly, is something that I think is going to be really, really encouraging to a lot of people. Also on the 2024 front, you remember Glenn Youngkin, who uh, folks like Brian Kilmeade and others were saying, don't sleep on this guy. He's definitely running in 2024. He's going to be very formidable. He turned a blue state red. And then Youngkin came out and said he's not running. Well, as of yesterday, Axios is reporting that Glenn Youngkin has decided to reconsider his 2024 bid. Now, I mean, the guy just dropped out. He's already thinking about dropping in. I mean, I'm not sure what that says necessarily about somebody's ability to make decisions as president if they can't even stick with their decision of whether or not to run for president or not. I mean, I'm not saying whether he should run or not, but it is interesting that he's now already reconsidering. So uh, there's that. On the the two big candidates on the Republican side of the ledger, and if you want to comment, you can, 800-848-9222. The two big candidates absolutely are Trump and DeSantis. We've seen Trump uh, hammer DeSantis in terms of his support for modifying Social Security. We've seen Trump hammer DeSantis for eating pudding with his fingers. And then he had that ad where he merged the two. DeSantis eating pudding with his fingers and going after uh, old folks. Then, now, one of the consistent attacks that he appears to be leveling against DeSantis is something we've talked a little bit about this on, on this show. And look, we're still waiting for hearings to be scheduled on this. And when we when there are hearings scheduled on the fair tax, which is a plan to replace the income tax with the net with the national sales tax, which I've looked at this closely, it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Trump is right about this. But I want I want people to understand it. We're, we'll do a whole hour on this, maybe. Well, we have people on both sides of this issue making the case as to why this is a good idea or why it's a bad idea. Now, when DeSantis was in Congress, he was part of the Freedom Caucus, and he was all for the sales tax. So Trump is not only taking out all these ads, hammering him on this, but he's got a new nickname for Governor DeSantis, even potentially more apt than Ron DeSanctimonious. On this sales tax had a plan to make you pay more. And the 
sales tax there. There are tax everywhere, sales tax. In Congress, Ron DeSantis wanted to replace the current system with a national sales tax, a 23% tax hike on almost everything you buy, from the gas station to the grocery store. You'll pay more here. You'll pay. Everyone will pay more. We can't afford Ron to sales tax. Make America Great Again, Inc. is responsible for the content of this advertising. Ron DeSales tax to the tune of Old McDonald. It is catchy, right? Let me just hear the beginning again. Ron DeSales tax, da da da. Ron DeSales tax had a plan to, to make, make you, you pay, pay more. more. And the sales tax there. Here, tax. There are tax everywhere. Sales tax. Ron DeSales tax. Ron DeSales da, da, da. I like it. I like it. Uh, I mean, I think it is catchy. I think that's going to resonate with people, right? All right. uh, We're going to take your calls in a minute. Then we're going to go through the mail. A lot of other thoughts I have on the presidential race. If you want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, speaking of things that rhyme with the word share, you know who's in New York City today, or at least yesterday? The nature boy, Ric Flair. Ric Flair is in New York. He um, is here because last night they had the Sports Emmy Awards, and he was nominated for his documentary, which is quite good. I don't think he won. I was trying to follow the Sports Emmy Twitter feed, and it doesn't look like he won. It looks like some other lame documentary one. I don't really know if it's lame, but it, um, it certainly cannot be as good as the one for the, that the Nature Boy did. But um, so I'm glad he's in New York. I did reach out to Ric Flair and let him know that we'd love to have him on the radio tomorrow, and then I'd also be happy 
to take him to dinner or for a drink. So far, um, I have not heard back. I have not heard back. But if um, if he did lose the sports Emmy, that would indeed not be fair to Flair. Be yeah. fair to Flair the way, the way to do it. If you don't want to be fair to Flair, then do it the way you're doing. But if you really want to be fair to Flair, to be fair to Flair, that's don't the way to do it. Don't start with a fair to Flair. <laughs> I've asked uh, Chris Libertini, our production director, to create a fair to Flair update sounder. So that so that every time we have a fair to flare update that we can play that fair to flare update sounder. And so far, like many of my requests to Chris Libertini, this has not only gone uh, undone, but it has just gone unanswered. Not even a courtesy response, not even a we'll work on this when we can, not even a K, nothing, nothing, not even a response. Do you know how many? No. Do you know how many emails I have not responded to? From coworkers that, or even listeners that have been directed towards me, zero, zip, wow, zero, nada, and uh, yet I wish. I, unfortunately, uh, Chris Libertini does not have that same attitude. All right, back to the 2016 or the 2016 race. This feels like the 2016 race at times. Back to the 2024 presidential race. So to catch you up real quick, Republican side of the ledger, Tim Scott is in. Chris Christie poised to jump in. Ron DeSanctimonious poised to jump in. Mike Pence, poised to jump in. Glenn Youngkin, looks like he's reconsidering after dropping out. Obviously, the top of the heap, the guy that is leading the polling far and wide is Donald J. Trump. But the fact of the matter is, as we've chronicled before on this program, there are a lot of Democrats that would prefer someone other than Biden. And while it's not a majority, there are many Republicans that would prefer someone other than Trump. And a lot of people... A lot of people are looking at the prospect of a Trump-Biden rematch, and they are just ready to, they're ready to go nuts. They're ready to scream. So anyway, into the mix comes No Labels, which is trying to put forward an alternative to the potential of a Trump-Biden rematch. Because aside from the candidates' ages, let's face it, whether you like Trump or you like Biden, both of these candidates are very flawed. I mean, uh, Whatever. I don't we don't want to get into the reasons why. I, I think the reasons are pretty self-aware uh, or pretty apparent. So no labels is a group that I'm a member of and have been following for a long time. I'm not really involved in what they're doing now because what they're doing now is so secretive. We don't know where they're getting this money from. They have a goal of raising 70 million dollars. And apparently they've raised they claim they've raised close to two thirds of it already. But basically their plan is as an insurance policy. And we've talked about it with Joe Lieberman. We've talked about it with Mark Halperin. We've talked about it with Ryan Clancy. We've talked about it with others. Their plan essentially is to run a third party or independent ticket consisting of one Republican, one Democrat. The names that have been mentioned are people like Joe Manchin, people like Kirsten Cinema, people like Larry Hogan. And basically, this ticket would be a home for anti Biden Democrats and anti Trump Republicans. And um, they are only going to do this if their polling suggests that they can actually win. They're doing this not to run a protest candidate, but to run a candidate that can be a mainstream alternative. I think it's an intriguing idea, and I'm not necessarily committing to voting for this candidate or these candidates, but I think the more choices that the voters have, the better we all are. One of the people that's involved with this is the former Republican governor of North Carolina, Pat McCrory, 
who appeared on Cats and Cosby on 77 WABC yesterday, and he described a little bit of the role of no labels in 2024. Where do you see the race shaping up and the role for especially no labels? Well, first of all, there's some great people running. As a Republican, I think there's some great people running. The dilemma right now is both the Republican and Democratic leading candidates the majority of people, in fact, well over 60 percent of the people are not content right now with the two leading candidates in both the Republican and Democratic Party. And we've never seen these numbers before. Usually it's, you know, usually 40 percent of the people go, you know, can't we do better than the two candidates that the Republicans and Democrats are nominating? But right now it's over 60 to 70 percent of people are going, are we going to have the same ticket that we had last time? And if not, if so, should we have an alternative, another ticket? And that's what No Labels is doing. If the numbers after Super Tuesday show that the vast majority of both Republicans, Democrats, and Independents do not like the two candidates being proposed by either the Republican or Democratic Party, then No Labels will have a slot on the ballot in hopefully all 50 states and have an alternative. And I'm a Republican who believes in competition. And right now, I think, as a strong Republican even, there's a little bit of arrogance among both parties who just assume that the American people will concur regardless of who they nominate. And I don't agree with that. I like competition, and uh, the numbers are showing us that people may want another choice. Now, I personally think there's some good candidates in the Republican Party that would make excellent presidents, but right now um, – it looks like the two leading candidates are, are are a rehash of the last election. Now, a lot of people are concerned. Now, it's really the Democrats that are concerned because some of the early polling cited by a group called Third Way indicate that if there's a third party candidate or if this no labels candidate emerges, that it's going to hurt the Democratic nominee and lead to Trump being reelected because apparently the Trump-leaning voters are much more loyal to him than the Biden-leaning voters are to him. That's not my conclusion. That's what this Democratic group, Third Way, has said. So there's a lot of concern that this could spoil the election for someone, either the Republican or the Democrat, or this is some sort of a a broad conspiracy on some sense to uh, screw up the proper winner of this. So Pat McCrory uh, addressed the concern that I've heard every year since I've been active in politics about whether or not now's the right time to have a third-party candidate. This is what he said. I thought his answer was a good one. Is it a practical thing to do to have a third-party candidacy given the intricacies of the election laws nationwide? It's not only a practical thing. It's something our nation and our two parties maybe need a wake-up call on because of this type of arrogance that they're showing. No matter who we nominate, that's the choices you're, you're stuck with. But the election laws are different in every state regarding how to get on the ballot. And no labels has a has a process right now to get on every ballot in every state. Um, and, and by the way, the Democrats, for example, uh, no, no labels have got the sufficient amount of signatures in Arizona and the Democrats are fighting them. They, you know, here the party of uh, not stopping people from voting want to stop people from having choices in Arizona. And that's not the right thing. And. 
Thoughts, questions, comments vis-a-vis the presidential race. You want to talk about Trump going to war with uh, Ron DeSales tax, 800-848-9222. Tim Scott jumping into the presidential race. Is he running for vice president in real in reality? 800-848-9222. Youngkin reconsidering. Christie, DeSantis, and Pence all poised to jump in. And a third-party, no-labels ticket, rushing to provide some salvation to people that don't want a choice between Biden and Trump. Uh, take that any direction you want. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with uh, David in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Yes. Um, two things. All right. First of all, Trump is welcoming Tim Scott into the race because he wants as many candidates in on the Republican side as possible, because that way he has a much better shot of getting the nomination. And trust me, all these other candidates, because Trump has said he's not going to show up at the first couple of debates, they're going to spend all their time attacking DeSantis. So that's the plan. Now, as far as Tim Scott is concerned, and the reason that I would never vote for him, and I think most African-Americans will never support him either, is that this is a man who has admitted in the past that he's been racially profiled by police, pulled over, and everything else that happens to black men in this country, yet he claims this is a colorblind society. Now, I have spoken to you many times about the stuff I've gone through personally. For a black man to stand up in front of a national stage and say that we're at the point that Dr. King spoke about, about people being judged by the content of their character, is a slap in the face to people like me who've actually gone through racism and continue to do so. Well, let me ask you, David, let me ask you this. Um, Obviously, you know, I recognize that you come to a different conclusion than Tim Scott on where we are in race relations in the country these days. And, you know, I totally understand that and I understand why. But don't you think the fact that he's admitted to having been racially profiled and being sort of uh, a victim of uh, racist thinking and racist actions, that actually might cause some black voters to give him a a second look and say, all right, okay, maybe this guy doesn't agree with where we are now, but at least he knows what it's like because he's been through what I've been through, whereas Biden, DeSantis, and Trump, they can't relate to what I've been through. There's a probably a validity to that with a small percentage of, of African-Americans. But the, the issue is, let's be honest, that message isn't for black people. That message is for a certain subset of white people who want to believe that this country isn't racist and they love it when a black man stands up like Ben Carson did and some of these other characters in the past who make them feel better by pretending that this is not a racist country that we're living in. That's what this is really about. And Tim Scott should be ashamed of himself. I am frankly sickened by him and some of these other people that have stepped forward over the years because, listen, I am the first person who wants this to be a colorblind society. I want a better future for my niece and my nephews, but we're not there yet and we're not even close. And for him to stand up and pretend that we're even halfway there is is really insulting and degrading. And I think he should really rethink what he's doing. I know he won't. Because let's be honest, it's very lucrative for a black conservative to step forward and say these things. So he will continue to do it. I think it's damaging to black people. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I know that you will never agree with me on this, but I, I think that, you know, we are living in a racist country, Frank. And if 
you have black people stepping forward who pretend that it isn't, it's damaging to the cause yeah. of, of making a better future for all of us. Thank you, David. I, I don't agree um, with your characterization of this as a racist country. I also, um, I, I just, I don't agree. Now, but uh, but whatever. I've spent a lot of time giving my analysis of the race, and I'm sure we have a year of this, so I'm not going to give you all my points now because I want to get to the mail. 800-848-9222. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Hey, how you doing? Uh, first of all, it's not a racist country. You haven't seen my family. My family's a melting pot. We get together and give each other hugs all the time. We love each other. Wonderful. That's great. I think a lot of families are like that. And I think even the ones that are not aren't necessarily racist. And the second thing is I wanted to say, put a little trust back in this government. I'd like to see a Republican-Democrat ticket, one of each. Well, that's what the that's what the no labels ticket is going to be. It's going to be one Republican and one Democrat. Because I'd like to see a Trump Kennedy ticket. That's what I like. Well, you know who's actually suggested that? And thanks for the call, Mike. Roger Stone has said that's the ticket he'd like to see. I don't uh, know. Kennedy, at least as of now, is saying there's no way he'd run with Trump. And I believe that given a lot of uh, Kennedy's positions on the environment and on things like the uh, Paris Accords and things of that nature. I, I don't I think that's probably true, but who knows? Uh, I don't know that Trump's going to offer it to him, but we'll see. 800-848-9222, Dan, Rigo Park. Hello. Yeah. Uh, Scott will be labeled uh, an Uncle Tom. That'll be blindly accepted by the blacks, the overwhelming number of blacks in this country. And the white liberals. And that will be the end of Scott's uh, venture to the presidency. Why do you think that that did not hurt him when he was running for Congress and running for Senate? Why was he not um, successfully tagged with that Uncle Tom label when he ran in uh, in South Carolina? You'd have to understand the politics of uh, South Carolina. And one, and Lindsey Graham, a, a, a state that collect Lindsey Graham, with all his contradictions, it's a lunatic asylum. All right, fair enough. Thank you, Dan. I uh, I think this re- message is going to resonate more than more than you might think. All right, we're gonna go through the mail next. If you have an email that you would like read on the air, you're welcome to email me at frank dot at red AppleAudioNetworks.com. That's uh, Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at RedAppleAudioNetworks.com. Try and get to as many of your emails as we can. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Now or never, 
the great Elvis Presley, well, now or never might be the time that uh, we go through your written correspondence. Now strikes me as good a time as any, shall we? Twitter world. This is from a Twitter user whose name uh, escapes me. Uh, Spike is his name. So you could tell you're in for something very intelligent uh, when uh, the person's name is Spike. Curtis and Avery rip you a new one every week. They make you out to be the village idiot taking about pens. I think he means talking. (laughs) Taking about pens and an infatuation with Shatner. Thank you, Spike. Lori (laughs) writes in response to a tweet that that I was going to be doing something. I don't know. Lori writes, OMG, so excited not. Show is boring. And then a a Z sleeping emoji. Maybe you could find a different career so we can give Curtis Sliwa your slot. And I told her if she finds of anything, if finds anything, I'd be willing to look into it. All right, <laughs> David writes. Um, so now you're calling DeSantis by the nickname Trump gave him. Can you be wow. any more in the tank for Trump, Frank? You know what I love about this audience, and I mean this sincerely. Is I recognize that my politics are sort of syncretic and they they don't necessarily fit one way or another. Um, so people can see within me whatever they want. But all of the so many of the conservatives that listen think that I'm a left winger and so many of the left wingers that listen think that I'm a conservative and no one's happy. I love it. OK, Joyce writes. Well, maybe Joyce is happy. I like Joyce. Frank, when you're a little bit older. You might want to run for president. You would win, and you would be a great president. Joyce, thank you. Well, first of all, Joyce, I don't know that I would win because uh, not enough people around the country know who I am. That's number one. Number two, I actually thought about running for president next year, and um, I thought about it, and I looked at it uh, long and hard. But ultimately, I decided uh, not to, one, because I thought it would be very unlikely that I could win, But two, because I can't really take time off from work. If I didn't work for two weeks, I I don't know how we would pay our mortgage. So that's the problem with our political process today, one of many, is that you have to be a millionaire or a professional politician to be able to afford to take time off from your job to run for office. The other problem is, is it costs a fortune. It costs $500 million to have a shot at actually winning. So if I, I'm always asked, oh, if you win the Mega Millions, what would you do? If you win the Powerball, what would you do? One of the things that I might do is run for president or governor. But unless you're independently wealthy or a brown-nosing politician with connections, you can't do it in this day and age. Ellen writes, FYI, Haftorah versus Hora. Hi, Frank. This morning you referred to the lifting of a bride and groom on chairs during a Jewish wedding celebration as a Haftorah. A Haftorah is a Jewish prayer, which is part of a Sabbath service. Typically, boys who are being bar mitzvah 
will chant the Haftorah during Sabbath services, the dance you were describing that you were referring to as the Hora, an Israeli circle folk dance. Yes, I'm aware that I, I misspoke. I've been to, I was a wedding videographer uh, for many years, so I've been to hundreds of Jewish weddings and probably about a hundred, maybe more, bar mitzvahs. And so I know the difference between a Haftorah and a Hora. I misspoke. I apologize. Thank you for the correction. Paul sends me a photo of him standing on the Atlantic City boardwalk 30 years ago. Hi, Frank. This is a picture of me circa 1992 in Atlantic City. On the austere side, I usually stayed at the Comfort Inn on Kentucky Avenue. It was cheap, yet many rooms had small hot tubs. Walking distance to Sands, Bally's, and Boardwalk. I think that James Taffy building was nearby. It also seemed that some delicious pizza was nearby. I want to say Danny's. I think he's talking about Tony's Baltimore Grill. Their large size was huge, priced small with an unbelievably huge taste. Not a surprise why you're a fan of AC. That song, the lyrics and melody by Bruce and the band, really fits the town. He's so right, and I love this picture. It's in front of the old Sands Hotel and Casino, which is not there anymore. And I wish I could get there this Friday because Kelsey Grammer is going to be there for the unlocking of the sea, which is the time to be in Atlantic City. That's the most fun day other than maybe Fourth of July weekend. It's a great time to be there. And unlike uh, Kenneth, he actually, you know, takes the time to inform me when he's going to be in Atlantic City. Kelsey Grammer, that is. All right. um, This listener, no name, says, hey, Frank, I love the show when I can actually get it. Here in Anchorage, Alaska, and it's not a repeat. KYBR AM 700 seems to play the same show over and over again for days on end. For the better part of two weeks, one of the shows they re-air every day has been, I forget the guy's name, he's from New York City, had something to do with the Guardian Angels. It's a host that does nothing but belittle you and call you an alcoholic throughout his show to the point I don't even listen to the station anymore. Uh, well, I'm glad they're liking the show in, in Alaska. Can we find out why this show is repeating in Alaska? I, I don't understand that. Um, all right. Uh, Michael writes, over the last month or so, month or more, I've had trouble getting the radio station on the radio. It can be hit and miss for a few minutes, either last Thursday or Friday morning. I heard you mention that the other side of Midnight Song was available by sending an email to some address. I had no paper or pen handy at the time, and the signal was coming in good for me to hear about sending a request for the song. The good signal did not last long, just enough to hear you talk about the song request. Yeah, if you want a copy of the song, Stevie G is going to make it available to you. Email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Diane and Elizabeth writes, Sorry, Seinfeld was not only not the funniest sitcom, actually, yawn. I vote for MASH, even Roseanne. Going way back, Lucy was all-time funniest. While we're on the subject, Bob Grant, sarcastic jerk. H. Stern, sick and disgusting. So, Diane, I'm glad you listened, but... We may just not have the same tastes. Harris writes, hey, Frank, Frank, what is your wife's political orientation? And if it doesn't match yours very well, does this create any type of conflict for you two? I don't really know what her political orientation is these days. Um, I know what it was when I met her. I can tell you she's not enrolled in a political party currently. I'm not enrolled in a political party currently. And um, I think on some issues she's more conservative than I am. Other issues she's more liberal than I am. But... You know what? We don't really discuss politics. We're kind of pretty busy discussing our lives. You know, so no, it causes no conflict whatsoever. I love when we disagree because I can learn from her. 
maybe I can convince her or something. Uh, she doesn't spend as much time worrying about politics as, as I do. Uh, hi, Frank. Really enjoyed the interview you just had with Amy Klein, although enjoyed isn't probably the correct word. You were very sensitive in your questions and how you handled the topic. This was the fertility discussion. And it opened up a whole new world to most of us listeners. It's just another reason why I do love your show and value your interviewing skill. When you were speaking to Amy Klein, it reminded me once again of the couple you once spoke about who was expecting around the same time as Rachel, and then you found out they had lost the baby. I felt so bad for them, and I've often thought of them. Whatever happened to them? I hope that things worked out and that that woman was eventually able to get pregnant. Yes, uh, without divulging too many details, they actually did have a baby. Uh, I haven't seen her, but uh, I'm told that the, she and the baby are doing well. There's a whole bunch of other letters here. I may get to them a little bit later. If not, we'll get to you on the next edition of... A whole lot of email here, 800-848-9222. We're going to take your calls as well. And um, a fascinating story that I heard from Rita Cosby last night blew my mind. One of those stories that makes you sit up and take notice. I'll tell you about it in a moment. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank moreno i'll tell you what i don't get um i really don't get announcing your pronouns to people i just i never understood and maybe this makes me a dinosaur maybe this makes me backwards maybe this uh, makes me not down with the lgbtqia struggle but, um, and again, I have no problem with transgender people. You want to be a man, be a man. Be a woman, be a woman. Make no difference to me. Uh, go, go, good luck to you. Good luck to you. But the whole idea, now I almost can understand if you're transgender and if you've converted from man to woman that you need to tell people, oh, I'm a she. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a he anymore. I can almost understand why you need to announce that to people. Hey, I'm a I'm a he now. Just so you know, I could I, I I don't. I would wait until people call you the wrong thing and then politely correct them. It almost sounds like I don't want to I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to insult anyone. But it almost to me sounds like grandstanding. I mean, to go out of your way to announce your pronouns. I am a he. Where are you going? I mean, okay, thank you. But, um, and I guess I can understand if you're one of the people out there that's non-binary, I'm not even entirely sure what non-binary is. I guess that's when you don't identify with either gender. And one of the Jeopardy players in the Masters tournament this week, um, I believe it's Matea, she, they are non-binary. 
which uh, and she seems like a great person and a great competitor, certainly brilliant. She's got more intellect in her pinky than I do in all of my brain cells combined. And that's not an exaggeration. She's brilliant in or they are brilliant, if that's what I'm supposed to say in this uh, in this tournament. And I just I don't like the plural thing, but I guess I understand if you're non-binary, why you need to announce your pronouns to the world. I am a they, them, their, whatever. Okay, all right. Beyond that, if you're not non-binary and if you're not transgender, why do you need to tell anybody what your pronouns are? I think it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. It would never occur to me to tell people, hey, my pronouns are he, him, and what what else? Is that it? He and him. What about your amateur nouns? What are your amateur nouns? Um, so I don't get it. I don't get the announcing of your pronouns or anything like that. That being said, that is a thing that people do now. And we've covered this a lot with Marlena Shivo when she's on the show. She had an interesting story about how someone announced their pronouns to her and then referred to her as Miss Shivo and made the assumption about her pronouns. Now, fine. That is a thing people do now. They announce their pronouns. I I don't like it. It's not my thing. It's not what I want to do. I don't get why especially cisgender people do it. But that's what people do, right? We acknowledge that. We understand that. Well, this is a story that I find, if it's true, I find uh, really bizarre and um, somewhat peculiar. Two staffers at a private Christian university in upstate New York were fired for using their pronouns in a work email. As reported by the New York Times, Houghton, I believe it's pronounced Houghton, Houghton University administrators asked residential hall directors Reagan Zelaya and Shua Wilmot to remove she and her and he and him from their school-associated email accounts. And they didn't. So these two people, Zelaya and Wilmot, were relieved of their duties effective immediately. Zelaya shared a letter from the university dated April 19th explaining that she was in violation of institutional policy. She was barred from having an on-campus presence where she was only allowed to leave her apartment to either get her mail or get her meals from the university dining hall. Zelaya and Wilmot said they included their pronouns due to their first names being gender neutral and in the past have been misgendered in corresponding emails. Now, going back to what I said before, where I don't understand why anybody that's, I hate to use the term regular gender, but cisgender, I guess, is the term that we use now. Why any cisgender man or woman would need to announce to the world their pronouns This is actually a pretty good reason. If you have a name that is, that could go either way, like uh, Blake or Chris, even um, Danny to some extent, even Joey to some extent, there are a lot of names that can go both ways. 
And so I could see, look, the first names of these two people, Reagan, R-A-E-G-A-N, and Shua. Would you know just based on their first names if they were male or female or non-binary or tri-binary? Is that a thing? I don't know. It should be if it's not. Somebody copyright that. Make yourself a, uh, a gender millionaire. Now, I can understand why someone named Reagan and someone named Shua would need to, in their workplace emails, announce, oh, I'm a she and her, and somebody else would say, I'm a he and a him. So they said they included this due to their first names being gender neutral and they've been misgendered before. So they um, they did this video and uh, we'll, we'll try and get you some of the audio uh, of it where they talked about this. And basically they were fired for using their pronouns. And I I think that's terrible. Zelaya's letter of termination also cited she was relieved for defamatory statements made in the university student newspaper when she was asked for feedback on the administration's closure of the Mosaic Multicultural Center. Now, maybe there was a reason that she was fired other than this gender situation, but um, Zelaya believes she was fired because of how She upholds her Christian values, but alleges the school is also motivated to appeal to more conservative political beliefs. She told the New York Times, we live in a very divided world right now where everything is this or that, right or left, conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat. As Christians, I think we've gotten so caught up in these ideas of this is what I should be advocating for or upset about that we forget to actually care For people, you know, I think that was a great point. If you look at um, what Jesus said and what he did, he didn't sit around judging people. You know, Mother Teresa's favorite quote from Jesus was... When Jesus said, um, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. He says, whatever you do to the least person, the worst person, the least significant person, that's what you're doing to me. This is not a guy that sat in judgment of people. This is a guy that hung around with um, prostitutes, drunkards, and thieves. And he would try and do what he could to teach them, but he didn't do it by judging them. And so I don't think these two employees should have been fired. Now, look, it's a private university. I guess they can do what they want. I don't think this is a very Christian thing to do. And I don't think it's a... I think the rationale that they provide for using their pronouns makes perfect sense. Now, in a statement... A Houghton University, uh, a Houghton spokesperson said the university has never terminated an employee relationship based solely on the use of pronouns in staff email signatures. So they're denying this, relaying that the school has required employees to remove extraneous information from email signatures, including scripture quotes. Now, come on. Come on. 
Can someone show me an example of this college terminating someone that wouldn't remove their scripture quote? Uh, I think I think that's unlikely, to be honest. Houghton University is uh, affiliated with the Wesleyan Church. The president of the university, Wayne Lewis, responded to the letter signed by the alumni over the decision to fire these two people and um, say and said that the school unapologetically privileges an Orthodox Christian worldview rooted in the Wesleyan theological tradition. The president also noted that university staff was required to reaffirm their understanding of and agreement to these commitments. So I think it's a shame that these people were let go. I think the school should absolutely not have fired them. And in the fallout of these terminations, more than 600 alumni from this tiny little Christian school have signed a petition supporting these pair of pe- this pair of people and disagreement with the university's decision to close the diversity center. What one of the fired people told the New York Times, I think it boils down to they want to be trans-exclusive and they want to communicate that to potential students and the parents of potential students. I'll be honest, I agree. I don't think either of these people that were fired are trans, but what if they are? Who cares? The fact is their rationale for including their pronouns makes sense. Their first names could go kind of either way. And I think maybe they're on firm, very solid ground here. I'm curious what you think. Do you think these people should have been fired for including their gender identifiers in there? I don't. 800-848-9222. Here's a little bit of uh, Reagan Zelaya in a YouTube video talking about being fired for having the pronouns in her uh, email signature. I'll play that for you in a minute. Uh, we're on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And uh, where you can also email me at frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Here's a little bit of uh, Reagan in that YouTube video. Yeah, we had been, at the beginning of the school year, I had had my pronouns that said Reagan Zelaya, she, her, she slash her, and then my contact information, my title, that type of stuff. Um, and then we had received an email, I think maybe in October, uh, just institutional-wide saying, you know, for marketing purposes and for branding purposes, we are trying to have a streamlined email signature. And they had given a bunch of different examples such as, oh, like, you shouldn't have Bible verses or, you know, crazy fonts. Or here's the color scheme. Here's the fonts. Here's what your uh, email signature should look like for branding purposes and, like, marketing. And so at that point, I had gone through and changed my email signature to match their fonts, colors, uh, sizes, format of how they wanted the information with the addition of my pronouns. That, so it said my name, Reagan's Lyot, she, her, in their, fonding, or in their font and color uh, branding style. And then I also, which they didn't include in my, they would say that my, I was being 
fired because my email signature was not aligned with institutional policy and they specifically mentioned my pronouns, but they don't mention my meeting link that I had at the bottom, which wasn't institutional policy either. So it just shows like the priority of why my, what was bothering them about my email signature. So I think these folks are getting a raw deal. What say you? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Meantime, I'll tell you, I was listening to the uh, Katz and Cosby show yesterday. And uh, that's uh, uh, the 5 p.m. show on 77 WABC in New York. It's a great show because you never know uh, what odd combinations of people there's going to be. I mean, that's the one show that you could have um, Governor Pataki and Rudy Giuliani interviewing Andrew Cuomo and Melissa DeRosa, for instance. You just never know what, what's going to happen. Or you go one minute from, oh, here's uh, Nigel Farage to here's uh, uh, I, I don't know, Eric Adams to here's the head of the Queen's Chamber of Commerce. You just, it's, it's really great. I mean, in, in wrestling, they used to do something called the Lethal Lottery where they would sort of, kind of like we do for the Wheel of Topics, where you would spin this wheel and you would find out who your partner was and who your opponents were. It was really fun. It was cool. And that's almost the way I feel about Katz and Cosby. You just never know what to expect. You get the some of the biggest names followed by people that I haven't necessarily heard of, but I'm always interested in learning from. So anyway, one of the most interesting moments on yesterday's show wasn't necessarily one of the guests. It was a story that Rita Cosby told. Listen to this. And um, I found this absolutely fascinating. This was one of those stories, and I'm going to get to your calls in a moment, 800-848-9222. This was one of those stories that she told this story. I said, wait a minute. Is she joking? It made me stop what I was doing. I was, I was on my, sitting on my porch, may or may not have been puffing on a cigar. I was trying to get some work done, and I stopped. I said, that's some story. It turns out it's true. Listen to this. By the way, thank goodness our good friend Andy Stein is alive is, and well. He's alive and well. And guess who saved his life? Woody Allen. Woody Allen. He was choking apparently at a restaurant. They were out with our good friend Caravaggio. Caravaggio. Um, and they were out with our good buddy uh, Professor Dershowitz. And apparently Andy was choking on a piece of pork. And the guy who did the Heimlich maneuver was uh, Woody Allen, the 87 year old. Uh, Oscar winner leapt from Who's his over? seat. Uh, Alan Dershowitz or uh, or Woody Allen? I'm not sure. We got to check. But Stein is 76. It says Woody Allen is 87. Um, and apparently, I guess Woody Allen's wife was there too, Soon Yi Previn. Um, and they were at the restaurant. It was a big scene. And then suddenly, uh, he was having trouble breathing. Andy Stein. And of all people, his dinner uh, partner there, Woody Allen, saved him. And apparently he's doing okay. What a story. Can you imagine that? Now, Andrew Stein, if you're outside of New York or if you haven't paid attention to politics in some time, Andrew Stein was uh, a big-time Democratic politician. He was an assemblyman for many years. His father was Jerry Finkelstein. Uh, the uh, Basically, they would call him, and I don't mean to be at all pejorative in saying this, they would call him the Jewish Joe Kennedy. 
And his brother is Jimmy Finkelstein, who was the successful publisher of The Hill, a very successful media mogul for a long time. He just launched this new media outlet called The um, the Messenger. And Andrew Stein was the Manhattan Borough president. He was a state assemblyman for many, time, many years, and he was the uh, city council president for many years. He was one of the top Democrats in New York for a long time. He was one of those guys that they always talk about. Uh, as he was always the odds-on favorite to be the next mayor of New York. Everyone would always ask when you'd make your shortlist, oh, who's the next mayor of New York City? Oh, it's got to be Andy Stein. Everyone would always say it was Andy Stein. So he was a leading Democratic politician. And uh, these days, he's still a Democrat, but he became, I'm not sure what his politics are these days, but he was the head of Democrats for Trump. He supported Trump in both um, 2016 and 2020. So he's at a restaurant with Alan Dershowitz, and he's choking. And of all people to be saved by, it's Woody Allen. Um, Two elderly women are at a Catskill Mountain resort, and one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. The other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. Well, that's essentially how I feel about life full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness, and it's all over much too quickly. The, the other important joke for me is one that's uh, usually attributed to Groucho Marx, but I think it appears originally in Freud's wit and its relation to the unconscious, and it goes like this, I'm paraphrasing. Um, I would never want to belong to any club that would have someone like me for a member. That's the key joke of my adult life in terms of my relationships with women. So I found that absolutely fascinating. I don't know Woody Allen. I would love to interview Woody Allen, but um, I do know Alan Dershowitz a little bit, and I know Andy Stein a little bit. I reached out to both of them right away and asked them to come on tonight to talk to tell that story. And I said I would talk also about whatever they wanted. Uh, there's certainly a lot of legal issues to go over with Alan Dershowitz and a lot of political issues to go over with Andy Stein. But uh, neither one was available, and uh, Andy Stein had an early an early doctor's appointment or something today. But he said he did leave the door open to potentially coming on tomorrow. So he might be here tomorrow, and I'll pick his brain on where he sees the local political scene and the national political scene, but also, uh, of all people, to be saved by Woody Allen. I mean, that is quite a story to tell. It's almost worth writing an autobiography just so you can include that story. Don't you see the rest of the country looks upon New York like we're, we're left-wing communist Jewish homosexual pornographers? I think of us that way sometimes, and I, and I live here. 800-848-9222. Any subject is fair game. Joe is in the Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, Frank, I want to make two points. First, I'll recommend a book for you. It's called Big Law. By Lindsay Cameron. It's about these uh, superstar law firms. Very good novel on audio. The voice is great. But uh, it's interesting. Uh, some of these free novels on Audible, one of the books, it's talking about a female and it's using the pronoun they, and that confuses me as a reader. But I think you're right in this case. I think. These students are doing this as a courtesy because sometimes people feel awkward if they don't know if they're dealing with a a man or a woman and don't want to make the mistake of referring to someone as the wrong sex in a correspondence, and they're doing the courtesy for the people they're corresponding with to let them know, and they're actually trying to be nice. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree completely. I, you know, sometimes you could see there are stories where somebody's intentionally trying to make an issue of something and trying to become a martyr. I don't think this was the case here. I really do think these folks were trying to uh, be considerate of people. And I don't think they were looking to get fired just so they could get written about in the Times and uh, bring a lawsuit. I don't think that at all. I get the sense that these people were very sincere. Joe, thank you. And you know what we should do? We should ask people if there's any ambiguity, uh, especially a name like Joe, to please, when you call in at 800-848-9222, announce your pronouns. Let, let Kenneth know your pronouns uh, just so we don't misgender you. Uh, because that would be just horrendous. 800-848-9222. No doubting the gender of Neil. Am I right, Neil? Hello. Well, today my pronouns are deplorable and ultra-maggot. Well, those aren't pronouns. One is a noun, one is an adjective. Well, that's what I want to be called, Frank. You can call me deplorable, if you don't mind. (laughs) What I I wanted to call about was the way history repeats itself. Years ago, I remember Ed Koch was in a Chinese restaurant, and he started to choke on a piece of pork. And somebody did the Heimlich maneuver and saved him. And he was on the radio show. And I'll never forget a religious Jewish guy calling him up and saying it was God's will that you were choking because you were eating pork as <laughs> a Jew. You know, and now Einstein chokes on pork. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. What a, what a, what a great thing. Uh, years later, the same thing happens again. You know, um, Ed Koch claimed when he first told the story in 1981, now the story may have changed over the years, like many things with Ed Koch. It's very possible that he chose to become either more honest or tell a better story about it later on. But when he first told that story in 1981, he claimed that it was not pork, that it was watercress. He said uh, that he was choking on some sautéed watercress when he was uh, given the given the Heimlich, uh, but uh, who knows? You may be you know, you may be right that it was pork, and uh, it is apropos that his old buddy Andy Stein was in the same situation. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. I'm listening to Frank Morano and eating gabagool. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. One mission. When I'm not sleeping or speaking to you on the microphone, every minute of my day, I'm doing one thing. I'm trying to come up with things to talk about. And I do that by 
a variety of ways. Reading the newspaper, listening to the radio, talking to friends and family, just observing human life. And I will jot things down that I think might be interesting to talk about on the radio. Sometimes I'll jot them down on my phone. I have a a notes app that I jot them down on. Sometimes I'll jot them down in a notebook that I keep with me whenever I'm reading the paper. And sometimes uh, so that I could take notes based on emails that I'm reading or other correspondence that I have, I will just keep a Microsoft Word document that's open. And basically I keep a a rough outline of everything that I want to talk about and when I might want to bring it up. And then other than after, after the kind of schedule of what I'm going to do when, I have a, a something called other topics. The idea being that you should never run out of interesting things to talk about. So every day I add more topics to this than I can get to in four hours. So it's led to a situation now where this micro, this Microsoft Word document that I have with topics – single-spaced, has now gotten to 25 pages. It's unruly. It's unruly. I can't even make updates to the rundown because there are so many different potential topics on this. So I thought what we would do, what I would do, I should say, is flush out as many of these almost topics as possible and then start anew come this weekend. We'll get to as many as we can the next few days And then whatever's not gotten to, clearly there's a reason it hasn't been picked in a while. So we're flushing all these out and moving on starting next week. So um, I want to try and get to as many of these what I think are interesting stories as we can. Let us now. How do you pick when it's 25 pages worth of subjects and news stories? How do you pick what to talk about? Well, luckily, my friend Lena uh, turned me on to this app which is called the Spin the Wheel app, which is a random picker. And you can basically just spin the wheel. Well, this is bizarre. Headline, orcas, the whale, orcas are working together to sink boats. Scientists think the behavior started with one orca and spread across the population. Earlier this month, a group of three orcas began to ram a yacht off the coast of Spain, eventually piercing its rudder and causing it to sink. And it was not an isolated incident. This was the third boat sunk by orcas in Europe since 2020 off the Iberian coast there. And it appears to be a part of a growing coordinated effort. This is not a joke. This is not a bad sequel to Moby Dick. This is part of a coordinated effort by the killer whales to attack ships in the area. So why are the orcas doing this? Why are they going after yachts? Well, in a surprising discovery, scientists think the behavior started with just one whale and spread across the whole population. It's believed that a female orca named White Gladys experienced a critical moment of agony, such as getting tangled in illegal fishing gear, which turned her against the boats. 
because orcas are social creatures that imitate each other, other killer whales in the population started to copy White Gladys and ram into boats, specifically to damage the rudder. So since 2020, when the orca attacks started to ramp up, the vast majority of their encounters with boats in the region have been harmless, thankfully. Still, the increasing frequency of ramming attacks threatens the safety of sailors and the subpopulation of orcas off the Iberian coast, which are endangered. So it reminds me, you know, Bobby Heenan used to say, you be fair to Flair and he'll be fair to you, and Flair's always been fair. I think the lesson here is be fair to the orcas and they'll be fair to you. Let us spin the wheel. Ah, I must confess, because of my fondness for puns, that I was hoping this story would get picked. Headline, foul play, but it's foul, Um, (laughs) F-O-W-L. A rogue chicken temporarily halted services on Mexico City's underground. The authorities suspect some kind of foul play. Yes, that's right. Um, service was temporarily halted on one of Mexico City's metro system this week after a chicken got loose on the tracks. Video posted by the metro on Tuesday showed maintenance personnel and civil defense officers in hard hats chasing the chicken around the tra- around the tracks. You imagine that you're taking the train and you see a bunch of maintenance workers in hard hats running around like chickens with their head cuts off, cut cut off, chasing after an actual headed chicken. And they're following around this chicken on the tracks with brooms, gloves, and a trash bag. The chicken eluded several attempts to capture it before one worker tossed his coat over the animal. And the metro system said service was quickly restored after the incident. There is some video of this. I just uh, tweeted it. You can see it at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Mexico City's subway system has been plagued by a series of incidents that officials have claimed were sabotage. Earlier this year, a woman was arrested but later released after bits of a plastic washing machine agitator fell on the subway tracks. It was later determined that the incident was accidental. All right. uh, That's really just interesting because of the foul chicken pun. Spin the wheel! I am a sucker for a good dog story, and I am a sucker for a story involving alcohol. So it's no surprise that this one got picked. A U.S. This is apparently true, which is this is not Jeffrey Gurian weird but true or Weekly World News style. A U.S. driver attempted to get out of a DUI by by switching seats with his dog. I mean, you talk about really a brazen attempt to get out of a drunk driving charge. 
a speeding driver was pulled over in Colorado. He tried to switch seats with his dog in the passenger seat to evade arrest. So an officer, a police officer, approaches the car and watches this bizarre scene unfold. The man was initially stopped for speeding at 52 miles per hour in a 30-mile-per-hour zone. And according to the Springfield, Colorado Police Department, he was also intoxicated. The driver attempted to switch places with his dog. As the uh, Springfield Police Department officer approached and watched the whole process, the man also claimed he was not driving the vehicle the vehicle, and attempted to run away from the officer when he was asked about his alcohol consumption. He didn't make it far. Shocking. Police said the man who has not been named was arrested within 20 yards of the car and charged with driving under the influence, resisting arrest and speeding. He was taken to the hospital before being sent to jail. Well, thank goodness that that guy was driving. If that was the dog that was driving, then he might have gotten sent to the pound. As for his dog, whom the police also did not name, the animal was given to the driver's acquaintance to take care of while his owner serves his time in jail. Uh, According to the police department, I'm not joking, they really said this in a Facebook post, the dog does not face any charges and was let go with just a warning. Now, I do wonder what goes on in this guy's brain. What does he think? Well, I'm going to get in less trouble for letting my dog drive than if if I'm drinking and driving. Wow. All right. Uh, Spin the wheel. This is interesting. You wouldn't, it's a little, it's not something that I would have thought of, but it's not something that surprises me either. Japanese people, people that live in Japan, are turning to smile coaches to retrain their muscles after three years of mask mandates. So evidently, at least some people in Japan have forgotten how to smile. And they're going to hire these smile coaches. And... uh, it's it's funny. One of the leading smile coaches in Japan is this woman, Keiko Kawano, and she is a radio host. Go figure. See, our radio, the radio people always know how to smile. She found that when she stopped doing voice articulation exercises, her smile began to fade. And at a certain point, she struggled to lift the corners of her mouth. So that's when, at 43 years old, she decided to learn how facial muscles work and after using the knowledge to reanimate her smile, she started helping others do the same thing. More smile, more happiness. And now um, a lot of other folks are doing what she has done, and they have mimicked her same profession of smile coach. Very interesting. Smile coaches. If you're looking for a career, think about becoming a smile coach. All right, let us spin the wheel. Well, this is something that I think is just very petty. 
there is there has been a a UK supermarket chain sent a cease and desist order to a family run ice cream parlor over a particular flavor of ice cream that well to be specific specific uh, gelato flavor that they serve the Fabio's gelato it has been serving something called Perky Pig Gelato, P-E-R-K-Y Pig Gelato. And these, it looks like a pretty pretty nice ice cream or gelato. It's got little pigs in it. And uh, a day later, the ice cream shop put up another post showing this letter sent uh, from this company called M&S, Marks and Spencer, who claims to own that trademark of Perky Pig. They serve something else that's called Perky Pig, and they wouldn't let this gelato company... No, um, they use the name. It, the M&S does not own Perky Pig. They own something called Percy Pig. Now, come on. The people that own Percy Pig couldn't let these... Ice cream people use Perky Pig. I mean, I can almost understand when I saw the headline, I thought it was going to be Warner Brothers that 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 owns the trademark to Porky Pig that didn't want them doing it. But come on, Percy Pig. Don't be silly. We'll see where this goes. Um, all right, we'll do one more. One more round of spinning the wheel, because I want to try and find at least one non-animal related story. Spin one more time. Stories like this are what my Uncle Steve lives for. My Uncle Steve is a treasure hunter, spends a lot of his free time searching for treasure. And going to antique shops and going to flea markets. Loves it. He sells. He buys. He does it all. Well, an antiques dealer in Philadelphia bought a pair of cracked church windows for $6,000 from Facebook Marketplace. Now, that's Facebook Marketplace. Most of the stuff on there is pretty inexpensive. That's not a bad Payday for whoever's selling those windows. You think six thousand? That's not cheap for some cracked windows. Okay, but this guy later learned they were commissioned from Tiffany Studios in 1905. The windows could fetch that he spent six thousand dollars on. These windows could fetch five hundred thousand dollars at auction, and totally justify. All the countless hours that you probably spend perusing secondhand furniture online. Imagine that. This guy could could sell for a half a million dollars these windows that he bought for $6,000. I think that's really interesting. All right. Uh, that's enough wheel spinning for today. We'll try and get to some more of your mail and some other fun stories as well, this is The Other Side of Midnight, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything we've talked about thus far, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Marano. Straight ahead. 
The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. kind of music we're playing on this show uh join our facebook group just go on facebook and search morano radio fans and haters that's m-o-r-a-n-o radio fans and haters now um it's it is interesting Uh, my wife just celebrated her second mother's day and, um, you know, she really didn't ask for anything. We're not really big into gift giving or anything like that. So um, she, the only thing she wanted was to have a picnic. But I figured, you know, she's such a good mom. She's, she should get something. So I figured, well, you know, what, what is Rachel like? And, you know, she wouldn't want me to get anything too elaborate. And we, also, we don't have the money necessarily to get anything too elaborate. So I said, well, what would she enjoy? And I remembered that whenever we go around, whenever we're driving together in our neighborhood or elsewhere, she always points out a specific type of tree. She always points out something called magnolia trees. And she talks to me about these magnolia trees. And she always points out, oh, there's a magnolia tree, magnolia tree. And she was going on and on about how she'd love a magnolia tree. So for Mother's Day, and maybe it arrived a day or two after Mother's Day. I was I went online thinking I'm doing something really cool. And I find a place that I can purchase a magnolia tree. And day or two after Mother's Day it arrives. And it got shipped up from Arizona. A tree in a pot. All we have to do is plant it. All good. Well, we're getting set to plant this on Sunday. And my wife looks at this tree, and she's getting ready to do a little research, I guess, about where she should plant it. And, of course, I got the wrong type of magnolia tree. There are evidently two types of magnolia tree that you can purchase. There's a whatever type, 
and then there's the southern magnolia tree. And evidently, the southern magnolia tree needs to be planted more than 50 feet away from any structure because it grows to be gigantic and the roots can really screw up a house or something. And we don't really have a spot that we could plant this that's 50 feet away from our house. So um, I don't know that there's really a convenient way to send back a tree to Arizona, and I don't care to find out. And so we started thinking about people that we know that might be the beneficiary of this magnolia tree that have large properties, large yards that we might be able to plant this in. Now, of course, I thought of my one of my favorite siblings-in-law, Sharon, who was the beneficiary when we had an apartment of an outdoor heater that my mom had gotten us that we gave to Sharon because we couldn't fit it on my back patio. Interestingly enough, when we moved into a house, Sharon never offered to give us that heater back. That heater remains in her backyard, but that's fine. So we thought of Sharon, and Sharon decides to pass on the tree. Now, on Sunday... We're going out to Long Island, and we are going to be at my mother-in-law's house. And we said, well, maybe we should offer it to my mother-in-law. So we have done that. We have offered it to my mother-in-law, and we are waiting to hear back. So far, we have not yet heard back whether or not my mother-in-law will accept the tree. If she chooses to accept the tree, then we will be transporting this magnolia tree, which is not huge, but it's not small either. We will be transporting this all the way out to Long Island to plant it out there. If it gets rejected, then we will just continue to try to find a home for the tree. I don't know if my mom would want it. I don't know if her property would even have a spot for it because, again, apparently it just gets massive. So it would be a shame. Right now it's just still sitting on our front porch sitting in its pot, doing its thing. And I do feel bad for this tree. I learned from Shatner in Shatner's most recent book that trees actually talk to one another. I'm not joking. They, they talk to one another. They have a whole system where they can communicate with one another. And Shatner writes all about it in his, in his book. And I just am thinking of that. Every time I walk by this tree, I just think, this poor little guy sitting out there waiting to be planted, rejected by Sharon unacceptable to Rachel, poised, hoping. I think of it almost like a a child waiting to be adopted in an orphanage. Please pick me, adopt me, adopt me, take me home. But no one wants this magnolia tree. So we'll see. All right. um, I want you to think, those of you that are holding, we'll get to you, but I want you to think seriously and carefully. What is the best commencement address you've ever heard? And what's the worst? Tell me. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Until next hour, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat, spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So, uh, Sunday night, I'm preparing for Monday's program, and I'm uh, sitting in our studio, and uh, our producer, Alex Barnard, is making small talk with uh, one of my colleagues. What did you do this weekend? What did you do? And I'm just sitting there, reading through the papers making my notes of the things that I want to say, the audio we're going to try and look for, the, you know, the things that make a radio show a radio show. And I'm listening to these two go on and on about what Alex did this weekend. And Alex said he ends up going to some uh, graduation, some, some someone's commencement. I don't know if it was a relative or a friend. I didn't hear that part. But they get into a whole lengthy discussion about one of the commencement speakers. And you know who they had at whatever commencement Alex went to. And um, it's this is a really cool commencement speaker, much neater than anybody that I ever had. They At whatever commencement this was, they had Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder, the singer. That's pretty cool. And um, And then Alex and my colleague get into a whole discussion about what that commencement speaker must have gotten paid, what he did that was neat. And then my colleague said, oh, that's great that Stevie Wonder did this and Stevie Wonder did that. A lot of these commencement speakers come and they uh, they make it all about themselves. And uh, the other, per- other person says, yeah, a lot of them do do that. And, I, 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 you know, okay, it le- le- leaves me thinking, what is a good commencement address? And then I'm listening to Alex tell my colleague that one of the commencement speakers at his graduation, he doesn't even remember who it was. And he all he's thinking to himself is it's not about you, meaning the commencement speaker. It's my day, not yours. Now, meanwhile, I think really it's the day for whoever paid the tuition for Alex's undergraduate career. But so be it. Um, I got what he meant. I understood what he was saying. And it got me thinking, what makes a good commencement speech? And you go to a graduation, what's a good one? Because it's easy to know what's a bad one. A bad one is boring. And I um, I, I really, I'm, I'm not into commencements. I didn't even want to go to my own. I, the way, I, when I went to college, I never finished graduate school. But when I went to undergrad, I... The, the went to NYU and there's one college for your graduate for your uh, college which is very small and there's another one for your uh, whole university which is very big and I didn't want to go to either one honestly but um, my mother said oh look you know I paid the bill for this and so I want to go to a graduation so I went to one the one for my college I couldn't tell you who any of the speakers were. And then I um, did not go to the university one, which had as much, because that's the whole university, that has much better speakers. My sister-in-law, Deborah, she had the same kind of thing. She went to Stony Brook University, and they had one for her college and one for her university, but she had a double major. So she had to go through three, not had to, she wanted to go to three different 
graduations. Now, to me, that's torture. I'd rather have a root canal. I, I don't want to go to any of these graduations. To me, they're, they're boring. They're, they go on and on. They're interminable. And it's very rare that you hear any commencement speaker, whether it's the valedictorian, the salutatorian, or any of these other people that they get for the occasion, it's very rare that you hear them say anything interesting. So um, I have a, a twofold question for you at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. One, who has been the best or worst commencement speaker you've ever heard. Doesn't matter if they're super famous, doesn't matter if they're totally obscure, doesn't matter if there's something in between. The best and the worst, and why? Two, what makes a good commencement speaker? What is it what is it that makes an effective commencement address? I gave a commencement address once, and what happened was I was filling in for my friend Joe Borelli. And I think it was a high school graduation. And he's a, a politician in New York. And his I was working for Joe in those days, but his wife was in labor. So I would have pinch, pinch hit for him even if I wasn't working for him. But that was part of my role is I would rep Joe at different events. And um, what I did for this commencement address is I asked everybody that I knew for – Advice that you'd give to graduates. And then I gave all that advice to graduates. I gave the advice that every person had given me. 20 or 30 different pieces of advice. Gave it all. And I said, but there's only one practical piece of advice that I can give you that I know you will use. And it had to do with preparation of scrambled eggs. And about not putting milk in the scrambled eggs when you when you whip it together. And a lot of people said that was the best commencement address they ever heard. So, and that was done totally last minute, totally last minute. I'll tell you, um, I, so I went to my, I remember my preschool graduation. I went to a preschool graduation, kindergarten graduation, fifth grade, eighth grade, high school, uh, college. And whether it's my own graduations, whether it's graduations that I videotaped as a videographer, whether it's friends' graduation, whether it's family members' graduation, almost all of them, or sometimes when I was in middle school or high school, I would go and volunteer for other people's graduations to be an usher or something. Almost every graduation that I've been to has had some of the worst speakers ever. And so I thought of my, to myself, who is the best speaker that I've ever heard? And who is the worst? And I came up with the same answer, and I'm going to explain to you why, meaning the same person is the best commencement speaker I've ever heard and the absolute worst. And that is Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, the uh, senior senator from New York, former congressman, former assemblyman. And the reason it's Chuck Schumer is because if you've ever seen Chuck Schumer at a graduation, and chances are, if, you're, if you've been alive for more than two years, chances are you've seen Chuck Schumer at graduation. The, Chuck Schumer goes to these graduations, and he tells... First of all, he always invokes the kids. He says something interesting about student loans. He always has one quick news of the day story that affects the graduates somehow. 
one quick joke. Um, and then he tells a very compelling story, a very funny story, a story that uh, the graduates can relate to, that they can understand, that's re- relevant to the crossroads that they now find themselves in in life. Unfortunately, he has told this same story verbatim, word for word, for at least the last 25 years. I uh, was when I was preparing this show, I was thinking, how many times have I heard this story at how many different graduations? And I came up with at least 30 because what Chuck Schumer does, he does not wait for any school. And this is, I guess, why he's such a, a brilliant politician. He doesn't wait for a school to invite him to be the commencement speaker. He just shows up. Last minute. So he's very rarely in the program. He just shows up last minute. And I guess when you're a U.S. senator and even on a smaller level, either in Congress or in state assembly, they just let you speak. And so he always speaks, almost always first, and he leaves right after he speaks. And he tells the same story every time. And the story is amusing to hear once. Once, as my friend Joe Piscopo would say. It is ridiculous to hear twice. After you've heard it thrice, you realize that this is a routine he does. This is a guy that has a a basically a scripted routine that he does all the time. Now, this is graduation season. So chances are you're probably going to hear this Chuck Schumer speech within the next two or three weeks. Because he must give this this time of year. He must do this, no exaggeration, nine or ten times a weekend because he does it at colleges, I think, at every college in the state. And some colleges and some universities have multiple graduations. And I think to some extent he does this in D.C. and Beltway colleges. And Matt Blaze, have you heard this? You've never heard it? Did you go to college? Yeah, I, I I do have a commencement speech story, but not about Chuck Schumer. But no, I haven't heard the Chuck Schumer. Uh, well, speech. what's yours? Um, it was in 1993, and it was the hundredth year of the school of Southern Connecticut State University, and the commencement speaker was Dan Loria, who the That's act, cool. the yeah. actor that um, people most know him for Wonder playing you. the father on the Wonder Years, and he played Lombardi yeah. on Broadway. And the Wonder Years that had just ended. It was like the, that was the year it ended. See, that's cool. So it was a big deal that he was there. And he told this really cool story about how he started off in business and when he was working in restaurants. And he's like, Bruno was behind the bar and Big John was the bouncer. And he gave an inspiring speech. And he also told a story about the guy he went to high school with who had all the potential but then did nothing with it and was still living at home at whatever age he was. And it was like, don't waste your potential. So I was thinking what you said about what a speech needs to be. It has to be inspiring. It has to be amusing. It has to, be, has to make people think. And at the end, when he told the story about where he worked in restaurants, he goes, oh, by the way, Bruno behind the bar, that's Bruce Willis. He goes, Big John at the door, that's John Goodman. <laughs> and these are the people that I worked with and, and, and started with in the business. And look where we are now, something like that. It was well, kind of cool. It, that is cool. Uh, that's one of, that would be a memorable commencement speech. I've never had anybody like that, ever, ever. Uh, I instead get uh, Chuck Schumer. 
Chuck Schumer and Chuck Schumer and Chuck Schumer and Chuck Schumer. I can't run away from this guy. It's now at the point when he starts, I mouth the words to the story. I say the word. I I started out lip syncing the story. Now I just say it aloud. And I say it much shorter than he does. But he does this whole thing. I won't bore you with the whole thing. But again, it's a good story if you hear it once. But he goes on and on. And he says, 40 years ago, I sat at graduation from college as you are today. And I had learned right there that I had won a scholarship to travel all around the world, all expenses paid for a whole year. Well, for me, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. But at the same time, I met a girl and fell in love. Oh, and he leads the whole student body in an awe. Don't applaud over there. The story continues. You romantics. Well, so then he asked the, the, the class to vote. He says, how many of you would take the trip around the world? And then some people applaud. And he says, how many of you would take the girl? And, and some people applaud. And he turns to whoever the chancellor of the school is, whoever the heads of the school is. And he says, on this one, Dr. Simpson, the class is divided. And then he tells a story about how this girl left him. And then he tells a story. There I was. No scholarship. No trip around the world. No girl. I said to myself, what a loser you are. And then it ends on a more optimistic note. And he says, three years later, I found myself in your position again. This time at another graduation, this time from law school. And then he ends it on a more optimistic note. And it's horrendous. It's horrendous. It is delightful to hear once. But I would think after 20, 25 years of doing this story, you tell a different speech. Break a different story. Everyone's heard it before. Absolutely everyone. I hear this in my sleep. When I was seated at college graduation several decades back, as you are today, I had just learned that I had won a scholarship to travel all around the world, all expenses paid for a whole year. For me, it was the opportunity of a lifetime. I came from a working-class family. I had never been out of the country before. But at the same time, I met a girl, and I fell in love. (laughs) Aww. So I had to decide, class, Do I go around the world for a whole year on the all-expense-paid scholarship? Or do I stay home with the girl, my first true love? Class of 2018, what would you have done? (laughs) There's one person clapping. Well, I stayed home with the girl. Uh, so uh, that is my best and worst commencement address. It's great to hear once. I think the first time I heard it, I was 14. And the second time, it just loses its luster. Who is the best and worst commencement speaker you've ever heard? 800-848-9222. I had a tough time compiling a list, so I actually went online 
and looked up what people think are the best commencement addresses in history. And this one, and also, you know, I was struck by that Alex Barnard commentary to the commencement speaker. It's not about you. It's about me or whatever he said. It's not, it's not, it's my day, not yours. Now, all I'm thinking of, there's a reason they don't pick obscure commencement speakers because you there are usually somebody kind of famous, someone noteworthy like a Dan Luria, and they usually you want them to share an anecdote or something. the The president is always a hot commencement speaker, except in the case of maybe President Biden, who uses the term "black," historically black college and university when he goes to a place like Howard. But um, one of the more memorable speeches of a president at a graduation to a graduating class was John F. Kennedy in 1963. Now, remember what was going on in 1963. This was shortly before he got assassinated. The world was in turmoil. America had survived and the world had survived the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was all the turmoil still lingering from the Bay of Pigs and so forth. So John F. Kennedy took the, the occasion of his commencement to speak a little bit about peace. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived, and that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war, not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children, not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women, not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. Uh, you know, I always wonder that about a president giving a commencement address. You get to just go and speak about whatever public policy issue you want. I mean, I guess you find a way to relate it to the graduates, but it was certainly very memorable. That's something that a lot of people have written about. This speech that Steve Jobs gave to the uh, Stanford commencement, uh, the, the Stanford graduating class in 2005 has received some pretty high marks. Truth be told, uh, I never graduated from college, and uh, this is the closest I've ever gotten to a college graduation. (laughs) Today, I want to tell you three stories from my life. That's it. No big deal. Just three stories. The first story is about connecting the dots. I dropped out of Reed College after the first six months, but then stayed around as a drop-in for another 18 months or so before I really quit. So why'd I drop out? It started before I was born. My biological mother was a young, unwed graduate student, and she decided to put me up for adoption. She felt very strongly that I should be adopted by college graduates, so everything was all set for me to be adopted at birth by a lawyer and his wife except that when I popped out, they decided at the last minute that they really wanted a girl. So my parents, who were on a waiting list, got a call in the middle of the night asking, we've got an unexpected baby boy. Do you want him? 
They said, of course. My biological mother found out later that my mother had never graduated from college and that my father had never graduated from high school. She refused to sign the final adoption papers. She only relented a few months later when my parents promised that I would go to college. This was the start in my life. Now, that's a pretty good story. And it, it, I watched the whole thing. It actually did get better from there. And he, he does get into the importance of education, the importance of college, the, how um, an, a, an academic education isn't necessarily all inclusive and that there's other things you need to do. I, I mean, it was a re- very good speech. Uh, believe it or not, of all people, Ellen DeGeneres, when she spoke at Tulane University's commencement in 2009. This is considered one of the best commencement addresses. When I was asked to make the commencement speech, I immediately said yes. Then I went to look up what commencement meant, (laughs) which would have been easy if I had a dictionary, but most of the books in our house are Porsches and they're all written in Australian. (laughs) So I had to break the word down myself to find out the meaning. Commencement. Common and cement. (laughs) Common cement. You commonly see cement on sidewalks. Sidewalks have cracks, and if you step on a crack, you break your mother's back. So there's that. So what advice would you give a commencement speaker? And who's the best commencement speaker you've ever heard? Who's the worst and why? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Rocco is in Saratoga. Hello, Rocco. Yes, Frank. I think I have a good one. Stick with me. I have a couple of stories about it, also about my wife and being. It's at Notre Dame. Our son graduated from Notre Dame 2001. And who would be the speaker other than the Pope? Who do you think would be the best possible speaker you could have? Cardinal Dolan. Oh, come on. Do better than that. Frank. I give up. Who is it? The president of the United States, oh, okay. George okay. W. Bush. Oh. Okay. 2001. Look at that. Notre Dame commencement. George W. Bush was the speaker. Other than the Pope, I don't think, I don't remember any of the speech. We were at the graduation, obviously. I don't remember my daughter-in-law taped it all, so we have the VHS somewhere, but he was the speaker. But a great story. Our son was the, um, for the uh, cathedral on campus, his job was he was the sacristan for the cathedral. So he was in charge of all the visiting cardinals and everything that came to visit Notre Dame and setting up the masses. So at graduation, he didn't sit with us. He had to seat all the cardinals and all the VIPs in their special section. So he never even was with us during graduation. But that's besides the point. Um, The president did speak, obviously, lots of Secret Service. We had to go through metal detectors and everything to even get in. Uh, But anyway, at the cafeteria, two funny stories. My wife, mom, Notre Dame mom is sitting there. And all of a sudden, one of the students comes up to her and, and says, can I please ask you something. And and of course, hey, you're a Notre Dame graduating student. Absolutely. He says, can I please give you a hug? You look so much like my grandmother and I miss her. I'm from Alabama and, you know, she's no longer with us. So can I just please have a hug? Now he's there with two of his other buddies and they're cringing 
You're going up to this stranger and asking her for and my wife gets up and sure, son, I'll give you a hug. So he gives her a hug and he starts to cry a little. And, and my wife says, that's okay. You know, be proud. Today is a special day. And it's great that you remember your grandmother. That's really special. So then she goes to the other two boys and she says, would any of you two guys like a hug too? And they say, no, thank you. Thank you. They almost ran away. You know, it's like, no, thank you. We, 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 you know, we, 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 thanks a lot. So anyway, that's the first story there. So we called mom, then the official Notre Dame grandma. Anyone want a hug when she's there she's the official grandma for Notre Dame to get a hug the second one as we're sitting in the cafeteria the dining hall eating mom goes to to Nick our son said wow they have some efficient operation Rocco might be the only person that speaks longer and everything food and talking and and moving the lines and every and 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 Nick and Rocco might be the only person who cares less about what their audience said and so mom embarrasses herself again they're the secret service for the president and everything, making sure there's no, uh, I don't know, unwanted. By the way, the Dan Loria story, that's a great one. I, I love that. No, that same here, Rocco. One Rocco. of my favorite shows. Yeah. That was one of my favorite shows that you won the years. But- thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, I think Rocco just keeps going after after you jettison him. He keeps going. But anyway, you know, it's funny with those presidential commencements. I was listening to Michael Smirconish the other day, and he was talking about how his son graduated from, I think it was the University of Pennsylvania, but I don't remember. And one of the uh, one of the people that also graduated with him was Joe Biden's granddaughter. So Biden, this is just a couple of weeks ago, Biden went to the commencement, uh, but not as a speaker, just as a regular family member in the crowd. And they acknowledged him from the stage, which I think is the respectful thing to do. You really do. Oh, and um, my colleague Dominic Carter was telling me that Biden, when he was vice president, spoke at I think it was his daughter's graduation. I have to think that's annoying, though. I mean, it's great to see a president or a vice president as one of the commencement speakers. But to have to go through the magnetometers and the metal detectors, I have to think that that's so um, cumbersome. I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, I guess it's worth it if you get a memorable speech like that. I'll tell you another speech that has gotten very high remarks, uh, high marks, I should say. And if you want to make a remark about the remarks, I'd love to know what makes a good commencement speaker. 800-848-9222. Who was the best you've ever heard? According to Matt Blaze, it's Dan Luria. And who was the worst you've ever heard? 800-848-9222. Chadwick Boseman who starred in the film The Black Panther, and he also played Jackie Robinson, passed away, unfortunately, at a relatively young age. He spoke at um, Howard University's commencement in 2018, which, as uh, Joe Biden will tell you, is a black, historically black college. And here was what uh, Chad uh, Bozeman had to say to the class of 2018. When completing a long climb, one first experiences dizziness, disorientation, and shortness of breath due to the high altitude. But once you become accustomed to the climb, your mind opens up to the tranquility of the triumph. Oftentimes, the mind is flooded with realizations that were for some reason harder to come to when you were at a lower elevation. At this moment, most of you need some realizations because right now you have some big decisions to make. How would I maneuver through all of this? Finally, I thought of Ali in the middle of the yard. 
in his elder years, drawing from his victories and his losses. At that moment, I realized something new about this, the greatness of Ali and how he carried his crown. I realized that he was transferring something to me on that day. He was transferring the spirit of the fighter in me. He was, he was transferring the spirit of the fighter to me. He was transferring the spirit of the fighter to me. Sometimes you need to feel the pain and sting of defeat to activate the real passion and purpose that God predestined inside of you. So that was Chadwick Bozeman. I don't know that that meets the Alex Barnard test of it's my day, not yours. It might have been a little too uh, central to the speaker, but um, I, you be the judge. Kevin is in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Uh, how you doing? Oh, um, uh, I think the best commencement speech was uh, Dave Lumen. Um, was who? Was who? Dave Lumen. Lumahan. D- he did a commencement speech at. Yep. I'm not familiar. He did a commencement with speech at uh, Columbia, 1999, and it turned into a song called the Sunscreen Song. Are you familiar? Oh with that? yes, yes, of course. Wear sunscreen. Yes, that was uh, from. Yes, uh, yeah, Baz Luhrmann uh, remixed that, but that was an actual commencement speech. Yes, sir. 1999, Columbia. Uh, so, and what was the worst that you've ever seen? Um, couldn't say on the worst. Haven't seen enough to see the worst. You know, um, they, uh, okay, so that was 1999's Columbia Address. I See, but that was released, Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen, in 1997. So how could it have been released as an album two years before it was given as a commencement speech? That's the information I uh, pulled off the Internet. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Well, thank you, Kevin. 800-848-9222. Tom in Hawthorne. What do you got for us, Tom? Hey, Frank. Uh, long-time listener. First-time caller. Welcome. Welcome. Um, welcome. Uh, great to have great you. Show. Great show. I love it. Thank you. Um, my daughter My daughter graduated from Bucknell in 2002, and um, Dan Rather was supposed to be the speaker and and so either a big story came up or he got in, maybe that's when he got in a little trouble. Uh, but he was canceled. And they had a guy at the time, I didn't know who he was, Ken Langone, <laughs> who, was the, who was the co-founder of Home Depot. Sure. Well, he graduated from Bucknell, like, I'm going to say back in the 30s or 40s. And he finished at the bottom of his class. Well, this guy got up and he was, he just talked like a regular guy, you know, be to work 15 minutes early, stay 15 minutes late. He was he I just, he was just amazing. I thought it was a great speech. I, I it sounds like a good speech. Uh, what about do yeah. you have a pick for the worst uh, speech that you've ever heard? I I do not. I do not. Yeah, but that's a I've good one. A couple. I My like son that. graduated from Penn State, and I remember that being a good one. But uh, yeah, love the show. Keep it up. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate that. Uh, my Uncle John says uh, that he saw Admiral McRaven. You know, he's a pretty interesting guy. Even if you end up disagreeing with some of the things that he says, and I think I do, he, uh, he is a very good speaker. He says he saw an Admiral McRaven 
um, commencement speech and that he was pretty good. You know, Admiral McRaven was actually, uh, if memory serves, he was rumored to be a running mate for, I think, Barack Obama. And um, you think of how different the world would be today had he been selected instead of Joe Biden. Now, I'll confirm that that's the case, but uh, that's what I'd always heard. Um, Pamela, well, actually, before we get to Pamela, this is the last commencement speech that I'll play for you that's gotten a lot of attention. This is Taylor Swift speaking at my alma mater, NYU, and uh, this is a little bit of what she said. Learn to live alongside cringe. No matter how hard you try to avoid being cringe, you will look back on your life and cringe retrospectively. There you have it. Good advice. All right. Uh, We'll continue with your calls in a moment, and then we'll do the $1,000 Minute in a bit. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Commencement season. What is the best commencement address you've ever heard? What is the worst? Maxine is in Manhattan. What do you have for us, Maxine? Well, I have my um, first um, favorite commencement speech was made by um, basically uh, Admiral McRaven. Oh really? Yeah, my uncle John just mentioned yeah. him. Where, where did which yeah, school did you it, see him at? Um, t- um, 2014 at Texas University. And what was it that made it such a good speech? Um, the fact that the story he told about the Navy Seals and how some of them survived. And it's a really hard job to do. It not I wouldn't say job, but it's it, it's a really hard career to do. And um, I think what makes it a good um, commencement speech was the fact that he started off with um, just basic um, knowledge of who he is and where he came from. And he told a story about making a bed, what he did every morning 
was make his bed and he would come home and his bed would be made hmm. and if he didn't do anything that particular day he made his bed and I took that and I lived with that so every morning before I leave for work I make my bed uh, see, you know, it's funny. My Uncle John said the same thing after he heard him. And I clearly there's something about, thank you, Maxine. There's something about um, the way he said that that really did inspire people. And I think I did uh, misremember. It was not to be Obama's running mate. I think when Obama was leaving, maybe in uh, 2016, I think he was encouraging McRaven or was actually hoping McRaven would run for president. Not vice president, actually. He was rumored uh, to, to be a running mate for Hillary, but obviously he probably chose the, the, the smarter path not to for himself, if not for the country. Bill is in Oyster Bay. What do you got for us, Bill? Yeah, hi, Frank. Love your show. Thanks. I've never called a show before. This is really Welcome, exciting. welcome. It's great to have you. I, Love all these first-timers. I had a very – whenever I tell somebody I had this person as my commencement speaker, they're always very surprised. Because my commencement speaker from Georgetown University in 1982 was Mother Teresa. You're kidding. Yeah, to be really corny, it was kind of a drizzly day, and this is corny. But when she got up to speak, guess what happened? The sun came out. How was she? Well, first of all, that's interesting. How was she as a commencement speaker? Um, She was short. Short. Uh, no, no she, I was kidding. No, yeah. She was short because she was very short. Right. No, she was terrific, and her message was not surprising at all. And I can't think of the exact words, but not surprisingly, her message was to love other people. Now, um, did she have words of wisdom for the graduates? Well, like I said, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember. Yeah, well, it's 40 years ago. I don't blame you. Yeah, the, but... the, pithy, the pithy things that you said, but it was love. You know, if if you can't do this or you can't do that, just love someone. I love them anyway. Just love. And then I have a copy of it. You know, there was no VCRs. Right, right, right. Tape recorded. Uh, but um, I have it somewhere. I have a picture of it on my, and I have it somewhere. And it's a short address. But it was very touching. Just because what? It's Mother Teresa. That's what. That's interesting. That's a story to tell. That's even better than Matt Blaze's uh, Dan Luria story. Thank you. You know, it's funny. I'm reading an article about Mother Teresa's speech in 1982 from the Washington Post, and even some of the Jewish students that couldn't relate to going out and working for Jesus, they said they found things that they could relate to in her speech. That's interesting. And I'm glad I asked the question because I never would have thought that. Of uh, Mother Teresa, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two. You know what we're going to do? We're going to play the thousand dollar minute in a moment. If you want to be the seventh caller to eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two, we'll give you a chance to answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds. And if you can do that, you'll be a thousand air. So be the seventh caller now to eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Pamela, though, in New Jersey, was holding. Hello, Pamela. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I think for the most part, politicians and celebrities, it's too much about their ego. There are exceptions to the rule. Um, you know, Kennedy's speech was good. Reagan was a good or- oratory person. Um, I would have preferred somebody like a George Carlin or a good, uh, you know, per, a comedian with a monologue. 
um, who could tell you about life in a comedic way to get your attention, because most of us don't remember our commencement speakers. They were usually politicians stating their point of view, and it's all forgotten, except if you're really good, like JFK was really good at talking. So your ears perked up. When you don't. Talked. You don't remember who yours was then either, because I, I don't remember mine. I think mine was Bradley or somebody, uh, a politician, New Jersey politician. Oh, probably Bill Bradley. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. okay. And, yeah. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Finish your thought. Well, yeah. You know, it's like I don't want your viewpoint. The star of this show is supposed to be us graduates, and you know, JFK relayed that in his speech you just played about. You know, if you can work towards peace and all that, that's OK. That's a generality. That's not like pushing a point of view. But mostly it's uh, egotistical stuff. And, and it's, um, I, you know, I, I think the generous that that was funny. That was like and I'm sure she got into something realistic about life. But most comedians, good ones, the old style, David Brenner and all, they used to really talk about life <laughs> and you know, the ups and downs of life, you know, like a Seinfeld, you know, that show, people love it so much because it's real about the down, down parts of life. And uh, I would prefer that. And we, yeah, it would be I, memorable. I don't blame you. Thank you, Pamela. Well, well said. You know, to Alex's point, you know, his attitude is it's not about you. It's about the students. Meanwhile, it's at least a little bit about the person, because the reason they're inviting these high profile commencement people there is because they're at least somewhat famous. But I get what they mean, that they want it to be more about the uh, the students. But according to Alex Barnard, Stevie Wonder actually sang at the um at the you know uh, commencement address which is kind of cool you get a little mini concert for free that's cool all right uh without further ado it is time for the other side of midnight presents it's the thousand dollar minute answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win one thousand dollars here's your host frank morano let us say hello to Frank on Staten Island, a name and a place after my own heart. Hello, Frank. Frank? Hello, good morning. Frank, you ready? Yes, sir. Okay, great. Uh, we're, we're rooting for you because of your name and your hometown. You know how to play, right? <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, great. Let's get started. What is President Biden's first name? Joe. How many inches are in a foot? Well, what country is directly to the north of the U.S.? Canada. After taking over for Jack Parr, who hosted The Tonight Show for three decades? Uh, uh, Johnny Carson. What law enforcement agency was J. Edgar Hoover in charge of? Uh, that would be the FBI. And... Um, uh, sorry, got a computer problem. We'll give you a couple extra seconds. Who leads Major League Baseball in home runs? Uh, I don't know. Take a guess. Derek Jeter. No, um, unfortunately, Derek Mickey Jeter. Mickey Mantle. No, <laughs> Jer- Derek Jeter and Mickey Mantle don't currently play. Uh, it's uh, Pete Alonzo. <laughs> Leads baseball. I'm sorry, not a sports fan. I hear you. I hear you. Okay. Well, Pete Alonso, much like the two players you just mentioned, 
is an American institution. I hope I didn't throw you by that brief delay there, but we would have given you the extra time. Um, All right, Frank, you did well. You got up to question number six. I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information, and we will give you a complimentary magnetic bumper sticker because we don't mess around. You could have used it as a refrigerator magnet or a magnetic bumper sticker. You know, uh, Lisa Pure, who uh, called into this program yesterday, she wrote me. And she had what I think is a very good idea. You know, we're in this whole Save AM Radio campaign. And she suggested that a lot of listeners, that we should have bumper stickers made, magnetic bumper stickers, about Saving AM Radio, which I thought is a great idea. And uh, I, I'm gonna, I told her I'd suggest that to our owner, John Katsimatidis, because I do think that's a fine idea. All right. Big day for me today. Uh, hopefully this is a day where I get to hang out with Ric Flair, although all indications are that will not be happening uh, because I have not heard back anything from the Flair folks. But big day for me in that today is solar panel day. They're coming to our house today to install solar panels on our roof. So my wife said wow. to me, you really shouldn't sleep in our bedroom because you're not going to be able to sleep because they're going to be marching all over the roof, making all sorts of noise. So she has made up the day bed in my office. So I'm going to attempt to sleep in my office, which is on the lower floor, while all the solar activity goes up on the top floor. We'll see where this goes. We'll see where this goes. So far, if I can't sleep, then not meeting Ric Flair will be the other low light of this day. We'll see where it goes. I'll let you know. All right. Uh, Rick in Elmwood Park has been patiently holding, and then we're going to get to 15 seconds of fame. Rick, what's on your mind? Thanks for taking my call, Frank. Um, I don't think the whales are bothered by the being caught in the net thing because that's been going on for a couple hundred years. But what is new is the sonic surveying of the oceans, which we know interferes with their ecolocation. It gives them trouble uh, communicating with each other. Uh, finding food, protecting themselves from sharks and other prey, and being hit by boats. Well, thank you, Rick. Uh, Matt Blaze has heard enough from you. He's demanding that we break. Uh, so we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Ah, yes, the great and late Andy B. Singing the other side of midnight. Without further ado, it is your opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Neil! Yeah, Frank, save yourself the embarrassment. Don't tell Johnny Katz about a magnetic bumper sticker. The bumper plastic. Mike. Morning, Frank. I'm scheduled to do a commencement speech next week at the University of Hard Hard Knocks. I hope I achieve some success before then. Thank you. E. Frank. Yes, I withdrew from college, Frank. I didn't drop out, but does college stand for craziness, overlapping, legal laziness, engulfing gargantuously excitement? Mitchell. Yes, your friend Sid, he said it many times. He uh, He's nothing but a jerk-off. Oh. Chris. I graduated from Holy Cross in 1984. My commencement speaker was New York State Governor Mario Cuomo, and he was brilliant. Kurt. Yeah, Frank, good morning. Uh, I played the game a couple of weeks ago. I didn't get past the third question. I just wanted to let the, to thank you for, for the magnet. Oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Tony. Yes, solar panels are all made in China. You should not put them on your house. Marie. Hi, everybody. Um, six years ago, solar's been calling my home. Six, seven years. We, we decided not to go with it because of the reason the guy just said. But anyway, Sid is still a moron. Frank. Memorial Day is next week. Americans, don't be lazy. Put out an American flag. Yeah, and a New York State flag. Uh, had a lot of brave people that have uh, fought for the New York National Guard. All right. Uh, without further ado, tomorrow we'll be back. Andy Stein and a whole lot more. Frank Morano, good day. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.